Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Conrad, thanks for asking. I'm wonderful. I'm having my second cup of coffee. It's got a little Bailey's in it, so I feel pretty good about that. And uh, enduring the hot weather in Oklahoma. But the main thing, so my mind right now, is the fact that uh, as folks hear this, I should be in Chicago. I should at least be en route to Chicago, and I can't wait. And I'm pretty fired up about today's topic in honor of CM Punk coming back. We're going to talk about the one and only CM Punk today. Jim, let's just start right at, right at the top here. When did you first hear about CM Punk? He, he feels like one of those guys that may have been on your radar as a name you had heard because he had a lot of buzz outside of WWE before he ever got signed. Yeah. CM Punk was a, a, a big top star there at ring of honors. Most fans realize and remember, uh, he, he was their champion at, at various times. So I, uh, kind of, he got on my radar, I'd say around 2004. Uh, and then he came to WWE in 2005. I want to believe that, uh, my, my run as the EVP of talent relations was over by that time. Uh, but it was pretty simple. You know, you go to ring of honor and you got, must not like any other promotion. You take their top guys if you can get them and bring them in and, and mold them to your own image. If that's possible. So he was, uh, he was on the radar because he, a lot of the talents liked, uh, him because his work ethic and his, his in-ring stylings, uh, Phil Brooks, a very unique guy as you know, inside and outside ring. We were talking about that, but a lot of the talents wanted to work with him. And I thought that was a pretty good recommendation, but but then it was a pretty much a no brainer, uh, for Lauren to bring uh, punk into WWE. He's, he was really one of the best talents in the world at that time. So, uh, that was a good hire. And, uh, but that around 2000, I'd say I get really got more familiar with him around 2005 Conrad, you know, when he was making that transition back out of ROH into WWE. Yeah. I think a lot of fans really start paying attention to him in ring of honor because uh, he has a really 
sort of a landmark feud with Raven. I think that was like Oh three, maybe a four. I first saw him do a promo in 2004 for ring of honor and thought, Hey, I don't know what this is, but I'm in, uh, it was one of those really, really well done promos that you wonder, you know, how much of that is real and how much of that is story because he cut a, a pretty scathing promo on Raven and, and talked about Raven's addiction problems and compared it to his own father's addiction problems and explained that he was straight edge. And if I'm honest with you, that's really the first time I learned about straight edge and what that meant. Jim, when did you learn about the straight edge movement and CM Punk and, and how he had sort of woven that into not only part of his wrestling character, but his real life? Well, the same as you, I, I, I watched a lot of ring of honor, especially in those days, because they had a, uh, not, they don't have a good roster. Now they do, but they had some, <clears throat> pardon me, some really significant talents, uh, on that roster at that time. Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryant, and, and others that I will leave out, uh, for no particular reason, but uh, I forgot who the LA are. No, I'm kidding. Uh, they had a good roster. They had a lot of really strong talents that were wrestle wrestling centric. And that always appealed to me and punk fit right into that group. Uh, I'm like you, I heard his straight edge uh, mantra the first time on a promo in, in ring of honor. And I, I, I like you, I was not as familiar with what uh, straight edge really meant in total. Uh, and I also didn't know that, that it wasn't a gimmick. I said, well, this guy's got a unique, he's got a unique idea here to draw attention to himself. It's a nice way to you to do a promo if you're a babyface or a heel. Uh, it kind of made some sense, but then I found out later on, uh, right after he came to WWE, that this was no no gimmick. There was no act. He believed in the straight edge lifestyle. He still does, and uh, that was the way he lived his life. So uh, it was a learning experience. And as we said before we started recording, you know, he was a uh, such a unique guy that I uh, I never met a wrestler that I can recall of his prominence and skill set that was that, that was straight edge. All the boys would drink a beer every now and then, or go meet the hotel bar, whatever the case may be. And that was social, uh, but not him. That was not his deal. Uh, even though he's one of those social guys in the roster, especially with the ladies, uh, he was, he just was not going to be doing any drinking and not going to doing any drugs. So I admired that. And for me as a former talent relations guy, getting him in the locker room with no, no baggage of that regard was a bonus. There came a time period where the WWE contract offer came and you left ring of honor. At that point, you were one of the top tier talents in ring of honor. At one point you were running their wrestling Academy. You were the world champion, all these other things. The offer comes and obviously there's more money, more fame, more adulation, bigger schedule. Was it hard to divorce yourself from Ring of Honor after all those years of working so hard to make that a destination for wrestlers and for wrestling fans? Before there was an AEW, before there were these other groups, and every promotion had, every city had five independent shows, there was Ring of Honor, and that kind of became the, de- the, the every, all rivers flowed to Ring of Honor, and then people went from there to other places. Was it hard to let Ring of Honor go and move on? Because that last night in Chicago. I mean, yeah, watch that. I cried like a baby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it hit me until that exact moment, the, how much it was going to suck. Because I was going into the unknown. I really, really was. Um, and, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of hope. There was, oh, you're going to get used the wrong way and this, this, that. And, but I was at, I was at a point where 
uh, I had to see what I could do um, because that's just that's just me and that's who I am. You know, it's like you climb the mountain and you realize, oh shit, there's another mountain. And then you climb that mountain and you're like, man, this it's just a plateau. There's more to go. So I was always trying to go there. And uh, WWE, in my career, I don't think was ever the final final. You know, I, I don't think I ever aspired to be a WWE guy. I think I wanted to wrestle in Japan because I think all my heroes wrestled in Japan. I thought all Japan wrestling was, you know, 93 was like far and away best wrestling of all time. And I wanted to go there. I got to go to Japan. I was like, fuck yeah, I made it. And then Hashimoto tells me uh, maybe too big, uh, lightweight, uh, not big enough heavyweight. And like next thing I know. I've canceled all my bookings because they were supposed to bring me on the tour, and then they tell me I'm not on the tour. And I was just like, ugh. So I call up Gabe, and I go, hey, can I have that booking back? <laughs> and Gabe was like, oh, yeah, you know, because Gabe, Gabe was always inundated with that. Like, Carino would always be taking guys, and guys would be canceling off shows, homicide, low-key, all that. So Gabe was thrilled that I was, you know, back on the show. And then I told him, I was like, I don't think the Japan thing is going to work out, and I'm sick of being jerked around about you're on the tour, you're off the tour. Uh, so I was just like, let's just fucking make something here. Um, and I think we did make something there. I think uh, I'm super proud of Ring of Honor at that time because I feel like we made it a destination, just like you said. And it, it's still going today. Yeah. I think it, at that time it was a destination for guys to go and not only work and get paid well, but also learn. And that's kind of... You know, like I wound up, I was like, I want to work with Jimmy Rave. And Gabe was like, what? Why? And I was like, nah, there's fucking something about him. And, you know, I mean, you know, I think he'll, he'll maybe learn something. Not that I'm, you know, professor or anything like that, but it, it was, uh, it was very hard. It was very hard to leave because, like I said, it was just unknown. It just, just felt like time to go. Well, you mentioned it, you know, we get lots of questions about this. You said, uh, and he's one of the most social guys there, especially with the ladies. Uh, you, you got any, uh, anything you want to elaborate on there? Well, I mean, he dated several women wrestlers there at WWE and, uh, you know, it's not secrets. He, he, I think he dated Beth Phoenix, uh, who's now married to edge. Uh, I can't remember all the other, uh, it was Raphael <laughs> Morphy and I were talking about that the other day, just on, on a trip. I mean, this, this dude got around, man. And he was very social, uh, and very much the ladies man. So, uh. And, you know, more power to him, you know, Bula Bula for CM Punk. But he, the, he was very social in that regard, but it was, a it, he was always social and he was never high. He was never drunk. He never buzzed. So, uh, but he did pretty good there. He had a nice social life. And then of course, uh, uh, ends up marrying his bride. And I always thought that she was extremely, uh, attractive, talented, complex, a character that you just couldn't help, but want to see more of. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, he, he just, his life has it's been a really interesting story. We're going to tell here today, but he was like, he's a unique dude, no doubt about it. And intriguing as hell to be around. And I think the fans are going to see that at, uh, Starcast. Uh, he's very, <clears throat> he's very, uh, opinionated and he's honest. So, you know, he may ruffle some feathers. I think I expect that he will. Uh, at Starcast, but I think it's going to be one of the more intriguing uh, presentations that you're going to be bringing all the fans in this entire weekend. He's that good. He's been he's been dormant. He's been silent. 
And I can tell you that it's just not his style to be silent. And I think Conrad, I was wondering, I was going to ask you a question. How hard was it to get him signed? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a process, you know, I don't think that he was necessarily looking to do anything, but over the course of, uh, uh, a few months of emailing back and forth, it felt like, you know, there was an opportunity and then it would go away for whatever reason, a few times. And, uh, I kind of thought it wasn't going to happen. And then very quickly a deal came together and, and we're excited to have him and, and the wrestling world is curious what he's got to say. You know, he's, uh, been silent for a long time and and i think everybody wants to hear more about what happened in the past but what i think most people are, are interested in and the question i'm sure he's going to get this weekend no less than 500 times is what's next uh because he you know sort of took a break from wrestling and and did some mma and now hey, this is a, a a very public appearance for him and, and the first one of its sort since he walked away from the wwe so this is going to be different for sure. Yeah. It's going to make a lot of headlines. Yeah. His interview will be quoted, uh, ad nauseum in our world. And it'll also be interpreted. Yes. Uh, ad nauseum in our world. Well, here's what he really meant by all the amateur psychologists slash wrestling fans out there that are expert in, in mental health and psycholo- psychology, <clears throat> I say, I say <clears throat> bullshit, but anyhow, uh, uh, it'll be fun and it will be be quoted. It'll be a, it, there'll, there'll be nothing happen this weekend, uh, at Starcast that will top globally the news and the, and the noise that CM Punk will make, uh, on Saturday. No, none. Uh, it's a, it's a great gift for you. When you told me you signed him, I was ecstatic for you because to me, that kind of put the cherry on the Sunday for, for, uh, for Starcast, Starcast three, just, man, this is a get. And so congratulations to you on that deal. And like, like you said earlier, the folks can still see it. If you're not even going to be in Chicago, you can see it on the, on the fight app. So, uh, I, I encourage everybody to check that out. All, all avenues of it, but there's nothing like being there. There's nothing like being there whatsoever. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm going to be there to hear it. I want to find me a spot in that, in that sit down and listen to that interview. I, I'm, I'm very curious what he's got to say. So I'm, I'm, I'm pumped about it. Let's talk about, you know, his influence, uh, you know, and, and obviously CM Punk had a lot of great matches. And I think most hardcore CM Punk fans remember his trilogy of matches with Samoa Joe in 2004 for ring of honor, ring of honor had a bit of a scandal in, in 2004 and folks thought, Hey, this might be the end of ring of honor. And, uh, once they started to write the ship, they needed something to sort of pull the nose up and change the conversation about what people were talking about with the ring of honor and what Gabe put together, uh, was not one, not two, but three matches with CM Punk and Samoa Joe. And these were really, really outstanding matches that were on everybody's radar, especially Dave Meltzer's. And he gave them high marks across the board. If you had to go back in time. You know, obviously we know that punk is going to wind up in the WWE or signing with WWE in 2005. It's probably the trilogy with Samoa Joe in 04 that, that put him on WWE's radar. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely fair to say, uh, it puts Samoa Joe on the radar too. So they helped each other because they had great chemistry. Uh, their matches were fought and presented in, with logic and physicality. Uh, they, they were, it was easier to suspend one's disbelief in, in the presentation because of those stylings that, uh, punk 
and Joe uh, exhibited. So it was a it was an eye opener for everybody. But they they had Samoa Joe and uh, CM Punk had just in my humble opinion, there was no better wrestling in 2004 on anybody's ring better than what we saw as fans from punk and Joe. So, uh, they did themselves both a great service and helped each other quite frankly. And, uh, uh, but it was, a, those are, those are monumental matches. And it's sad that I, I think the DVD that they did on those cats was one of the best sellers, not the best seller that ring of honor had had at least to date to, at that time. So yeah, that Samoa Joe marriage was great booking and the talents obviously enjoyed working with each other. They were allowed the freedom to create and create in their own personal image and the way they felt, not the way a agent or a producer or a writer felt it was their ball game to manage. And I think given talents of that level, that opportunity generally gives you the best chance to have a, a, a hell of a match and a, and a, a keeper, so to speak. So, um, I mentioned earlier, you were one of the early definitive personalities in ring of honor. And there was a time period where that company looked like it was about to fall apart. And you and Samoa Joe walked into a ring in Dayton, Ohio, and you did a 60 minute match and the narrative. Yeah, it was awesome. The narrative immediately went from ROH is doomed to ROH is great. And you went on to do a trilogy of matches with Joe, one in Chicago, the final one in New Jersey. Those matches don't get talked about or celebrated as much as some of the other stuff that you've done. Obviously, the WWE stuff was on a bigger scale. Talk a little bit about those matches and the mindset of walking in knowing you've got this company in your back and you've got to try and fix it and make it better. I don't know if we ever approached it like that. I really don't. Really? Yeah, I don't think me and Joe were like, well, this is it. I think we were just like, ah, fuck it. Let's just go have fun and, you know, let's let's tell a cool story. I really want to use the headlock a lot. And you, Joe, was just like, great, whatever. You know, um, I don't think we put pressure on ourselves in that regard. Um, I just I just think it's like kind of like next man up thing. There was a group of guys who worked for TNA. Uh, I was one of them. We worked for ROH. And, you know, like I remember we all had a, a bit of a meeting and we were like, we can't let TNA tell us who to, who we, we can and can't work for. And we all were like, yeah, gung-ho, let's do it. And then, you know, the next day, so-and-so cancels off Ring of Honor, so-and-so cancels off Ring of Honor, so-and-so cancels off Ring of Honor. And Gabe looked at me and he's like, you're canceling. And I was like, no, no, I... I just can't operate that way. Like TNA told me you can't work for them. And I was just like, I, yeah, I can like, yeah, I, I'm an independent contractor, right? Like, no, but you have a contract with us. And I was just like, all right, but you, it doesn't say you can not, you can't prevent me from working anywhere. So I, you know, a bunch of other guys said they were going to stay and they left. I stayed. And then, like I said, it was like a next man up thing. It's what happens in sports teams, you know, so-and-so gets traded so-and-so retires, it's the next guy up. And I was just, to me, I was like the next guy up. I don't know if Gabe ever looked at me like I was, you know, one of the main guys or whatever, but I, he kind of had to at that point. You know, there was, like I said, there was nobody left, and I wasn't supposed to wrestle Joe, and I'm the one who floated the idea of a 60-minute draw because I was just basically like, well, if Joe just beats me, then he just beats me, and there's nowhere else to go. Who's he going to work with next? So I think the idea of the, the trilogy came 
based out of that. And it was almost out of necessity. But I, I don't know if me and Joe ever approached it like we were saving anything. You know, we were just uh, maybe thankfully too young and naive to realize that, like, if we shit the bed, that it probably wasn't going to be in a ring of honor anymore. I feel like you and Joe had, like, one of the most celebrated wrestling bromances in that time period. You guys were like peanut butter and jelly. You were, oh, you know, it just seemed like it was, like, one of those matches and one of those clicking of personalities that worked. I don't know how close you are to him anymore. I don't know if you still follow what he's doing. But what are your memories of working with Joe? Because I, I, I don't think – you guys would have had success, but I don't think you would have had success the same way that you did if it hadn't been for that rivalry and that friendship. I, I think the rivalry had success just because of ideas. You know, I, I looked around. I would always look around at the locker room and, like, the landscape, and I would always be like, okay, what's missing? What's nobody doing? What's everybody doing? I'm going to try to do the opposite of that. Um, and I don't I don't take credit for, for anything. Uh, I, I think those who are there know, like, who did what, um, who's responsible for whatever it is. I, I think you can see my fingerprints all over stuff. I, there was a rash of 60-minute draws after all that, and, like, I apologize for that. Um, uh, but I, I loved working with Joe just because it was, again, it was one of those things that was it was easy. It wasn't always necessarily um, not difficult, if that makes sense, but working with Joe was easy. But it, the dude would beat the shit out of you, you know. So not that that was, you know, a bad thing. It was just kind of like the style we worked and he was a bigger dude that I felt like I, I'm not the smallest guy, but I'm not the biggest either. But I could get away with doing more with him because he was a bigger guy and he was a better base. And I think that's another thing that made the, the matches so much different is because it was believable that I could stand up to Joe because he's not, you know, 390 pounds. But there wasn't such a drastic, like, Rey Mysterio-esque size difference. Um, working with Joe, Joe's a peach, you know. Um, Hopefully, whatever he's doing now is is uh, is fun and good, and I hope he's happy. It's sort of interesting too his journey he takes before he winds up in the WWE because, and I think a lot of fans have probably forgotten this, but he was signed to Impact. He was a part of of TNA Wrestling and was down there pretty regularly and routinely. And uh, for whatever reason, they didn't do much with him. You know, he had the occasional spot on the big show, but he he wound up being on there. Uh, sort of prelim show explosion quite a bit. And it just wasn't, it, it maybe was a missed opportunity there. And, and at the time court Bauer was running, uh, MLW, this is before he, he shut down and took the long hiatus and before he relaunched and now is on TV, but the early days of MLW, he, uh, he's, he's working there for court as well. So between ring of honor and, and MLW and TNA, he sort of made the loop. I mean, he was everywhere before he comes into WWE and that's always, you know, the big time. And, and he grew up as a big Piper fan. That's one of his first memories. And I think there's an old photo of him floating around where he got to meet stone cold, Steve Austin, probably in around 1997, maybe 1996. And, uh, you can tell that, you know, he's just a huge wrestling fan and, and he's really attracted to the strong promo guys. And that's going to be the hallmark of CM Punk, not just the in-ring stuff, but his promo style. How would you, who would you compare him to on the microphone? Is there someone from wrestling yesteryear that you think, oh, Punk kind of reminds me of him. I always thought because of unpredictable nature, 
uh, and what you don't, you can't, you can't assume what he's going to say or what direction he's going to take that he was, he reminded me, <clears throat> pardon me, a little bit of, uh, Terry Funk back in the day when he was a great heel <clears throat> and, uh, able to, uh, uh, inside a crowd, he was a great salesman, a verbal salesman, uh, Terry was, and he never knew exactly what story he was going to tell, what analogies he was going to use, but somehow or another, he made it all relevant to his game, uh, inside the, inside the ring. So that would be one guy I could think of right now, but th- there's a really, it's rarefied air and comparing punk to anybody else to promos because quite honestly, there was a time there in my, my opinion that he was the best on interviews uh, in the business at one point, uh, you know, his pipe bond stuff is very infamous and so, so forth, but he's a, he is a, uh, unique cat in all areas, uh, including how he mixes martial arts stylings in with his wrestling matches, but his, what brought him to the dance and, and kept him at the dance, uh, in a big money, uh, position was his verbal messages that he could communicate. And, uh, so <clears throat> I think he's a, Really, in the in the last hell, the last several generations, he's he's in that conversation with the top promo guys of all time in that regard. So, and because the subject matter was so unique, and it was a natural extension of his own personality. Folks have heard me say that right here. The best stars are extensions of their own basic personality. Stone Cold Steve Austin is exactly like you see him. Except he's, he's he turns the volume down a little bit when the camera's not on, but his dialogue, his mantra, his feelings, his presentation are all very very consistent to his natural uh, shooting the breeze. Austin and I get in a conversation sometimes about football. We talk a lot of football, especially this time of the year, and it it, it sounds like an impassioned wrestling interview, but we're not talking about wrestling. We're talking about football. So that's just my point is Austin is a always just manifested his own real personality and let it roll for better or for worse. Here it is. And I think punk had the same philosophy. He just had different stylings. He, he sang a different tune, but it was still the same tra- road. He traveled that Austin traveled by being honest, open and saying things that were based in fact that the audience could relate to. It's this really simple process that for some reason, a lot of talents just never are able to master punk mastered it. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. You know, you, you bring up Austin. I feel like I've got to bring this up several years ago to promote the new WWE 2K video game. They did a promotion where Austin is sitting down, having a conversation with at the time, WWF or WWE champion CM Punk. Yeah. And I conducted conduct that interview actually. So chat me up, you know, that everybody was a buzz. Hey, does this mean that? you know, Austin may be coming back or we, is there a chance we might get to see this? Is something going to happen? What do you remember? Was there anything like that ever discussed? Uh, well, casually, you know, get anything to get Austin back in a ring in that era was 
was going to be experimented with or suggested or whatever, because he was the golden boy and he was the one, he was the, the Mac daddy, the, the lead dog and all that other cliches. Uh, I remember doing that interview, <clears throat> uh, and Paul Heyman, uh, produced it. I there, I interviewed punk in Austin and we had no rehearsal. We had no script. We had bullet points as to what we needed to try to, uh, intertwine in our, in our presentation. And those two guys, I mean, I, I was like the point guard. All I did was give them the ball. Uh, so I can't, I'm not going to take any credit or break my arm, patting myself on the back for the interview. I was glad to be a part of it, but they had as good, uh, an inaugural chemistry. It's just about anybody I can recall. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, if Austin and punk had gotten the ring together, they would have produced masterpieces. They had the same basic philosophy of reality based pro wrestling and to be naturally extensions of their own personality. They're all on the same page with all that stuff. And both Steve, uh, and uh, punk were great wrestling fans as, you know, as a kid. So they, they were, they were lifers. So I would, I would have salivated to see that match and more, even more so to call it. It just wasn't in the cards because Steve's health, but, but man, oh man, that was some of the most fun television that I had been a part of in a long, long time. Thanks to two uh, K and Bryce Yang and all those guys putting that together. Heyman was, like I said, was, was there producing. Uh, it was a real cool moment for me to be a part of, but again, it just shows if people go back, people go back and look it up, uh, go back and find that Austin punk interview. If you haven't seen it, folks, it's kind of, it was kind of obscure in a lot of ways. So it didn't, it didn't get mainstream, uh, uh, you know, it didn't get main, it, well, it didn't make raw for let's say it didn't get mainstream coverage, but God dang, man, it was, it was scary. Good. It was almost, you would think because how it came off Conrad, that we had gone over it. We'd rehearsed the day before and you know, and then the next day we'd come back and get, you know, do it for real. Nope. No way, baby. We just, here's some bullet points. Here's, here's your cameras and we'll count you in and go and have at it. So it was. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful day of production. It's sort of fun to armchair quarterback and, and fantasy book the territory, so to speak. How do you think punk would have fit in, in the attitude era of the WWF? Peanut butter and jelly, baby. JR's barbecue sauce. Those good old ribs, hand in glove, every other, every other analogy one could come up with. He'd have fit perfectly. He would have fit as good as anybody that we had on the roster in the attitude era, because he was attitudinal for real. And the, you know, the nice thing about him one time I was talking, he's a very competitive guy. So he, th- there's no doubt, no reason to be, uh, to be surprised at how good his promos were because he wanted to be the best he could be. And, uh, he was really devoted into being the best in the, in his profession. Uh, so I think that, uh, I think that the son of a gun is just, he would have been perfect in the attitude era. And there we could have got, we could have got to see that Austin and punk match. That would have made the attitude there even better. Uh, but he'd fit perfect Conrad. He's just, he's almost too perfect a fit in the attitude there because he just, it's like it was created for him because he was genuinely attitudinal and, uh, that's what got him over. I think his attitude. Well, he's obviously on you guys radar pretty early on. He does a, a tryout in 2003. 
that, that didn't really wind up going anywhere, but I think he may have even popped up on TV at one point in like a backstage skit where, uh, he's congratulating Brock Lesnar on, uh, winning the belt, not as a, an on-screen character that's been named just a sort of in the backdrop or background. And that's right after Brock had beat Kurt Angle for the world title, but, uh, he gets another tryout in 05. And that's probably when you guys really decide, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do something here. Uh, I think it's May of 2005. He, uh, got a win over the amazing red. And a few days later, uh, he worked with, uh, Val Venus and this time it made Sunday night heat. And I think that's on YouTube somewhere. And Val, of course, beat him. And then, uh, about a week later, he worked one more dark match um with Matt Capitelli and I'm sure we'll talk about him another time and uh he would try one last one 3 days later with uh, Scotty Too Hotty and at that point you guys extend the offer so May of 05 is when the offer comes but behind the scenes he had been putting in a lot of work with Ring of Honor he was their trainer and uh, he had been uh, tag champ and world champ and uh, he had done it all with ring of honor. And as we mentioned, he had done some stuff with TNA, but probably the most notable thing that happened at TNA was a bit of a falling out with Teddy Hart, uh, sometime in, in 2004, I believe there was, a, a situation outside of a waffle house in Nashville, which is where uh, they were doing uh TV every single week or their pay-per-views at the time or a Wednesday night pay-per-view. That was the format for their business. And. Teddy Hart is one of those, uh, lightning rods for controversy. I think a lot of people assumed that it would have, uh, eventually worked out where he would have been a part of WWE. And I know he tried a few times and, and he was there for a cup of coffee, but it never really panned out for Teddy. Any stories about Teddy Hart you can share with us? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Well, I was happy to hire him, uh, cause he was such a little phenom, you know, uh, little meaning young, I should say. Uh, he was a, he was a, he was very, very skilled and talented. You know, you, you're raised in a heart family. You learn to work when you're like, you learn to work before you get your driver's license. You're a heart family member. And, and, uh, and he was, you know, so I, Teddy was his own worst enemy and some guys mature Conrad at different times of their life. We know that from working and being adults and having businesses and so forth. It's just one of those situations where everybody kind of sees the light or, or the door, the light becomes more clear, uh, at different times of our life. And, and you and I both know wrestlers that are, that are up there in age. They still haven't matured. They're still living the life of a sophomore with too much money in their pocket. Uh, and, but Teddy was just, wasn't ready for the road. It didn't seem like, uh, uh, but the, nothing, here's the thing about Teddy Hart. He did not have his lack of success in WWE, in my opinion, had nothing to do with his skill set. He's a hell of a little hand. I know he's doing some work for Court Bauer now in MLW. Uh, and I, I got to believe he keeps uh, everybody on their toes, but he's a really, really outstanding talent with great skill set. I just think that in that era, at his age, uh, he was just. Uh, he, he, he was susceptible to making errors in judgment in that regard. And a lot of this is based on the maturity level. It is not a sin, by the way, folks, it's not a sin. Uh, but you know, we talked about this one time with Scott Hall when the plane ride from hell and we had to give Scott Hall his notice. 
And I believe that we helped contribute to his longevity by getting him off the road, but he had had his run. Teddy had not had his run when we hired him, but we were loyal to the Hart family. And I believed in their, their work ethic and their DNA. Uh, and so we gave him a shot, even though he was smaller, he's just so damn talented. But I think the issue is, uh, social maturity. And, uh, Hey, I said the same thing when on the rookie Brock Lesnar, you know, he was a, he was a handful because he had never been on the road. There were things on the road that he'd never got to experience that he kind of liked. Uh, so, you know, Teddy was just a talented son of a bitch. I can tell you, he really was. And I hope he does great with the MLW and he can live this dream. But he, I think he had to make some light. I saw him at a, where did I see him not too long ago? Maybe at AEW somewhere, a taping or something. Something we did, and he was there as, as best I recall. He was at Starcast too in the back. I mean, he he wasn't booked to appear or anything, but he was definitely uh, in the green room. I saw yeah. him. So yeah, we we talked, and you know, he's talking about you know, hey, I made some mistakes, young. And we all did, man. The key thing is learning from those mistakes and moving forward in a positive manner. And it seems like he's doing that right now. You know, I don't know. I saw a little clip of him the other day with him and Hannibal. I had a little. Uh, uh, verbal spat on, 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 uh, on, uh, on, on, uh, on uh, video. And I didn't know if that was a work or if it was real. Uh, but anyway, he's a compelling character, but I, I like to, I like him. I hope he does well. You want all those kids that can stub their toe, you know, uh, and that you gotta, you gotta terminate. You know, I didn't like giving him his release. You don't like giving anybody the release, especially somebody that cares. I, the one thing about Teddy. Sometimes I think Teddy cared too much, and sometimes that clouded his judgment just to utilize common sense and conduct himself as a valued member, a teammate within the locker room structure. And, uh, but I, I, I like his game. I like his game, still do. But that was the issue there with him at that time. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the situation, the, the fight. You know, fights in wrestling uh, unfortunately happen. You know, talents don't get along. There's some words exchanged, then there may be a dust up. It seems mm-hmm. like it happens a lot less these days than maybe it used to. But you know, when you hear that, Hey, Batista had a run in with Booker T or in this case, Teddy Hart had a, had a situation with CM Punk at a Nashville waffle house. Does that make <laughs> its way to, to your desk? Do you hear about that? Even though these guys aren't working for you. I mean, you're certainly familiar with both names. Yeah, of course. Uh, they uh, wanted to scatter, smother, cover, and chump each other. <laughs> Don't think I haven't been to Waffle House about a million times in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, yeah, the word gets back because it makes the it makes the the old proverbial dirt sheets, and and uh, you know everybody can't wait to get their hands on a freshly minted, mailed and received dirt sheet. So uh, uh, yeah, well, I was aware of it, but. Hey, I tell you what, I, I'm sure Teddy's a tough kid and he has no fear. I get that. And he may be the baddest man in the land. I don't know that either. He might be, but I can tell you this, man, sight unseen. I got to pick a winner. I'm picking punk punk. Had, I had an interesting conversation one time about, uh, uh, shoots and real fights and things like that. And he was very, very, uh, matter of fact and telling me that, you know, I like to fight. And I will, he said, Jr. I will fight anybody. I'm afraid of no one. That's how I live my life. I can't be afraid of anyone. And the lifestyle that I've had 
growing up as a kid, his dad battled the alcoholism issues and so forth. Uh, his mother had some issues as well, according to what we read online, uh, bipolar type issues. Uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he's a tough son of a gun and he, he doesn't have any fear and he likes to engage in physicality. Hence, he went to the MMA and he, look, he's smart enough got to know that trying to get in the MMA business on a high level like USC when you're in your late thirties is probably not the most judicious decision one could make. Your chances of you succeeding are slim and none. And as the, as Nikolai Volkov might say, an old slim just left town. Uh, so he had a uphill struggle in that regard. So, uh, I, I, I know that he's a combative son of a gun. He would have been a handful. It would have been a hell of a fight, but I think punk would, have, and I don't want to piss off the Hart family because I love them. And, but you know, punk is a, I don't know. He, he seems like he always had a, uh, sense of urgency when it comes to those situations. And you watch his matches in the ring. You know, he didn't hold things back in the ring. He, he was not a stylistic guy, even though, uh, I'm sure he didn't stiff people and hurt people. I've heard of that. But what he did looked awesome, and it looked like you can't see through it, as they say. So I I, uh, I like his chances in that situation. But to know how, him how he is, he's naturally combative. He's naturally competitive. And, boy, those are great traits to have if you're, you want to be a star in the, in the pro wrestling world. Let's, uh, let's mention here that when you guys bring him in uh, and, and agree to sign him to a developmental contract, uh, of course, as you said, the, the dirt sheets get a hold of it. So everybody knows that he signed, but he's allowed to finish up his commitments to ring of honor and they schedule him for a world title shot in June. So, uh, not too terribly long after he has that, that tryout match and he beats Austin Aries and wins the world title and the fans are cheering. And, uh, of course, uh, afterwards he grabs the mic and does his, in his words, his first pipe bomb, he even references that the microphone in his hand uh, or in anyone else's hand is just a microphone, just a tube of plastic, but in his hand, it's a pipe bomb. And he announces that not only is he the ring of honor world champion, but he's taking this ring of honor world title to WWE with him. And, uh, eventually he shows up in the suit, which is very unseen punk life and, 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 uh, signs his new WWE contract on top of the world title. That's old school. Good stuff. Is it not? Absolutely. So logical, real, feel, felt real, was real in that respect. Uh, yeah, smart stuff by him. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, I've always wondered, I'm not so sure looking back on the situation. If you had been, if it had been my call, uh, sometimes corporately, you got to send a guy with his skill set, uh, to, uh, to like say OVW. And we got, we always got great results out of OVW back in the day with Cornette and Danny Davis and Rip Rogers, all those guys are great. And now Al Snow's owns the OVW and they're training some real good kids. They're going to produce some stars. There's no doubt about it. So there's a lot of good schools, folks. The OVW school in Louisville is one you don't want to sleep on. It's a, it's a damn good one. But I, I'm not so sure he needed that stop off in OVW other than maybe to get orient, maybe like an orientation on how we do interviews or how the PR is done or your schedule, what's expected of you. I, like, a, like I said, like a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you go to college, uh, orientation, you know, you, what is it? Orientation, orientation. Yeah. I said that. So anyway, uh, he, that was kind of an orientation for him, but, but as far as going there to 
better improve his game was a waste of time. His game was great. Don't screw with what he's doing because it's working. And he makes it work because that's how he feels about his presentation. Don't screw with that. But to go to OVW for uh, any other reason, just to kind of get his feet on the ground, get the people to know him a little bit, because he wasn't the easiest guy to get to know. He had a very, uh, you know, with, at times his personality was very withdrawn. Uh, sometimes he kept things to himself, uh, maybe more often than not. But to go to OVW to learn to work or to, or to improve his game was, I thought, a waste of time. And it sometimes is used in a, as a very awkward way to humble somebody uh, and, until that was then. Now, now, if you're in NXT, uh, you're on one of their main brands, and arguably, uh, some people think this is their best show. But <laughs> at, that time, at that time, Conrad, it was not that way. It was a l- legitimate little developmental territories. And, you know, my question would always be, did he really need to go to Louisville for anything particular other than uh, a quasi orientation? So let's talk about it because he's been pretty vocal about the fact that he felt like it was, um, I don't know, maybe a, a slap in the face. He was, he was upset that he's relegated to developmental. And when he's there, he discovers that, Hey, uh, Heyman's here and he has a lot of respect for him. So this won't be a bad thing to get to learn, learn from him, but he thinks he's ready. And apparently Heyman agreed. Mm-hmm. And according to, to Bruce, Bruce has sometimes said that when someone, and I've, I've heard from other folks in, in a more, um, maybe honest manner that if someone campaigns for a guy at events all the time, that sometimes Vince just sours on the idea, not because it's not a good idea, not because the talent being suggested isn't worthy or worthwhile, but because he's just annoyed that the person continues to bring him up. So as a result, he just isn't interested. Do you think that there's such a thing as, well, let's just, here's an example. I've heard a few years ago, Arn Anderson would bring up a talent over and over and over. And he would say in any of the meetings, Hey, what about so-and-so? And he did it often enough that someone told me that that talent was quote Arned, meaning Arn had pushed for him enough that now just despite Arn, Vince would never do anything with him. Do you think that maybe some of the early, um, stutter steps that punk had is because Heyman was campaigning behind the scenes too much. And it just annoyed Vince and Vince said, fuck it. It very well could have been Conrad. Very well could have been true. Uh, that's possible. Uh, I've seen the same thing and I've done it myself. I'm as guilty as Paul Heyman or anybody else touting, a a a, 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 a prospect or somebody we want to sign. Now, I was lucky in that role because I didn't have to get Vince's approval to sign talent. I, I signed guys after a while after I had that job because, uh, my track record got pretty good with our team. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, uh, I can see that very readily happening where there's a pushback or backlash on overselling. Uh, but I'm with punk. Uh, the, the value of punk going to OVW was the fact that we had Heyman there and Heyman was good at finding the looking at talent, refining their nuances. Uh, and creating uh, their their a marketable image that would sell tickets and pay-per-views and so forth and be a viable member of the team. Because if Paul likes somebody, for Paul's own ego, he's not he's not he doesn't want him to fail, and neither would I. So I'm <clears throat> same way in that regard. 
And I think Paul probably maybe learned some of that from me back in the old days in WCW. Uh, cause we, we traveled together, worked together and communicated daily. Uh, and you know, and he was, Paul was on the scrap heap there cause the booking committee hated his ass. I've always said that they, the reason they didn't like it cause they were in, some of them were insecure that they realized Haney was much smarter than they were and they didn't want him around. So I made him my broadcast partner, took him all the, out of the booking committee's hands. But yeah, man, I think, uh, I think, I think punk made the good news about this deal in OVW going to Louisville was the fact that Heyman was there and Heyman could actually help refine, put a little bit of shine here, there, and yon on the, on the coarse edges, uh, of punk. If that, if that was a good, if that's a good term. So that he, he came out a winner on that deal because here's the bottom line. Once he got to, uh, once punk got to the main roster, he was obviously really, really ready and maybe even more ready than he would have been if he went directly from ring of honor to the WWE roster. But the, my point is him being an OVW was a good thing because Heyman was there and it was a nice stop off because it kept him in the pr- protocol. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sending, that was the Vince's mandate, you know, send all these guys to, to the developmental and let's see what we got with them. And it's not a bad philosophy, but the, again, you, you don't send them there to help them learn to work because they can't take a flat back bump or so forth and so on. You send them there to, to learn the WWE way of conducting business that is a largely a non bell to bell function. So I think all in all it was a good deal for him, but did he need to be there long? No. And I don't think he was there long. Let's, you know, something you said a minute ago, I want to circle back to, but you said a lot of times talent would get sent to OVW as a way to humble them. Do you, uh, uh, can you elaborate on that? Because I feel like there's a, a lot of people who could interpret that different ways. I probably can. And, and maybe they should. Uh, my view was that you get a talent that's full of himself or herself. And they, they have been in a territory or a little a small indie like company. And they think they have all the answers and they're, they're, they're perfect to go. They don't need to practice. They don't need to, to get, uh, to, 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 uh, mold themselves into a, the locker room, they're ready now. And a lot of guys, women, men, whatever, are not ready. So, uh, and if you come in with your full of yourself, like some guys do, uh, you know, I, I should have been signed here years ago. Instead of saying, Hey man, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to work my ass off. You're going to see it and you're going to see the results. That's one thing. But to say, I didn't need to, I didn't need to, I was ready to go from the get go. I didn't need to go get trained. You think a guy like, uh, uh, you know, none of these, those kids on NXT, because they, they are ironically going head to head against, uh, AEW beginning in, you know, us in October, they're going to start in, in September on USA. Uh, you know, some guys believe that that's what makes the NXT different. Now you think Adam Cole and, uh, all those, all those great workers, Gargano and all those kids needed to go to, uh, to NXT to become good workers. No, of course not. They're good. They were good the minute you laid eyes on them. But again, you got the orientation aspect is there. They're always going to do that. Uh, but you know, I, I think, uh, I think punk was punk. If anybody was going to revolt and feel really, really insulted, it would be him. And I think with good reason, Conrad, but he, he did it. And I think the, the saving grace there, as I was, we mentioned was that Heyman was there to, to, uh, to see after him and that. That, I think that meant a lot to Punk, and then, and I think it meant a lot to him even more later because he, uh, Heyman helped get him ready for the main roster. 
Let's talk about, uh, somebody else who's going to eventually wind up in developmental. And, uh, it's probably the match that really had everybody talking. One of punk's first, uh, friends in wrestling is somebody he meets in wrestling school, a natural athlete who has uh, gone on to uh, maybe carve out a different path in professional wrestling, Mr. Colt Cabana. And these days Colt's legacy is all about wrestling podcasts and pro wrestling tees and what an impression he's made and forever changed the wrestling business. But when he was just a young upstart, he's doing every indie he can with his pal CM Punk and they're getting a lot of buzz and a lot of attention. And eventually you guys would, would bring him in for developmental as well and try him as Scotty Goldman. I think, uh, what can you tell us about the relationship of, of CM Punk and Cole Cabana back then? We know things maybe a little different these days. Yeah, they apparently are not uh, seeing eye to eye now on legal issues and kind of wedged itself between the two, the friendship of the two guys. Well, back in the day, as Tony Greer would say, uh, they, uh, they're buddies. I mean, they're best friends. It seemed like they're almost joined at the hip. You saw one. Sometimes you were sure to see the other. So they had a real good, uh, uh, wrestler to wrestler relationship. They both, you know, lived in Chicago. They did the Indies together. They spent a lot of time working with each other. I think they helped each other's in-ring game uh, immensely because it's, I've always said uh, you can't get better in the ring working with people, consistently working with people that are not as good as you. So you have to have a, a comp, comparable uh, skill set in the ring with you to get better at your game. And I think both those guys pushed each other well in that regard. Uh, and I remember bringing in a, a Colt Cabana. I thought for some reason, I don't under, I never have understood this, that Colt Cabana was a very, very good worker. He still is, but it seemed like the thought was, well, we don't think somebody thought he was not going to be a great wrestler, not a main event guy on the WWE level, which I totally disagree with. And so they want to make him a broadcaster. And quite frankly, I've heard some of his broadcasting work at ring of honor. He's very good. Yeah. He's very, he's very good. But that was the deal. He, it was almost like a, we're going to throw our hands up. No, he's not going to be a great wrestler, but, and he's like, he reminds that story reminds me of Brian Pillman, who we were going to make after he got his ankle fused, make him a, uh, a broadcaster in the shades of Jesse Ventura or somebody. And he hated it because his wrestling career in his mind's eye was not over. And the reality of the matter, it was over because he can't be as athletic or as, uh, you know, uh, as he was when he had his good, his feet were good. His ankles were good and all that stuff. But I think that was the thing about Scotty. He just, he wanted to wrestle. He had, he had unfinished fitness to do in the ring and wanted to get it done while he could still able to do it and, uh, not start a brand new career as a broadcaster. Uh, but I can tell you his, the, whoever had the idea of him being a broadcaster in W, uh, W E. Uh, was right on the money because he's really good at verbal skills. And, and why would you think not? He, he was one of the first guys to podcast. Uh, and he's a good talker, uh, smart kid. I always, he's very interesting to talk to, but I think they, they, both those guys are very, very complex in a lot of ways. Some ways, somebody might say that both Scotty and, and punk were both, uh, you know, uh, were complex guys. I'm not so sure how complex they were. They may have been more just the other side of that. They may have been very simplistic. Treat me right. Be honest. Be fair. Be, respect me. 
and you'll get 10 times that in return. And, uh, so they had a great relationship and it's unfortunate now that they don't have that relationship any longer. And I can only hope that for anybody's friendships that last long and you, you separate for a while that you can, they can reconcile and, and move on. Let's, uh, let's talk about one of the things that, that he gets going with, uh, he being CM Punk pronouns, pal, mm. um, he makes his debut on OVW TV, uh, and, and very quickly, uh, has a little bit of trouble. I think he suffers a ruptured eardrum and a broken nose on his official TV debut. And he's really out of sorts here. And he would admit years later that he didn't really know what WWE wanted, but he knew that they had a reputation of being sort of the land of the giants. And you got to remember this is, this is Oh five. This is not now. Uh, so in Oh five, you know, the top guys are guys who look like Batista and triple H and John Cena. They're not necessarily guys who look like Daniel Bryan or for that matter, Samoa Joe or CM Punk. So he starts to bulk up. He's, he's, he's eating more and he's changed his diet he's lifting more and he's trying to put on a bigger frame in Oh five. Is that, when did that culture change? Uh, do you, I mean, is there, is there a, a moment that you remember or a talent or, or a, an angle, a piece of business, whatever, where you thought, okay, that's no longer necessary. We don't need to have behemoths anymore. It was around that time because, uh, at the same time that we were bringing in, uh, Daniel Bryant was a, would be a great example for that because here's a guy that's five, eight or nine, uh, just absolutely an amazing uh, entering a tactician, uh, one that would, his skill set would, uh, would be successful in any era that I've worked in in my lifetime in wrestling. And I think punk fit right into that same mold. You got highly skilled guys, very motivated. They, they really, really wanted to be in WWE and maybe not just because of the money, but because of the status and the fact that WWE was always the goal. You know, it's easy to say, and I'm not knocking XFL, but if you're an American football player playing American tackle football uh, and, and you want to do it for a living, the first choice is always the National Football League. And I think the WWE is, uh, serves that purpose for a lot of the boys. It's their NFL. And uh, so getting to that level, getting on an NFL team was a huge deal. So, you know, I, I'm uh, – He's just, uh, he was just, uh, he, he was one of those guys that had just a fa- fa- fantastic skill set. He had that great verbal ability to, to express himself. And he incorporated some MMA stuff, some, some, maybe a little bit more submission stuff that uh, other people, you know, may not have utilized as, as effectively. But Punk and, and Daniel Bryan, I would say, are two of the leading guys uh, that, that made this thing work. And I think when I signed Ray Mysterio, uh, that didn't hurt anything because, you know, Ray, although Ray, we don't, Ray is so good. We don't think about how small he is. Uh, he's, he's a, he's a, he's not a big guy except he's got big talent, but things like that contributed to Conrad to your question about when that started uh, going away and, and, uh, the size thing that I think, uh, oh heck man, I I believe that, uh, it was a, a process but a Ray Mysterio contributed to it. Punk, uh, and Punk was six one or so. You know, he he could he could hold he could stand to to bulk up a little bit, uh, and he did. 
but you know, I don't know, man. I think that, uh, I think that, uh, punk and, and Daniel Bryant and all those ring of honor guys that Laurinaitis, Laurinaitis went in and signed uh, would be contributing factors to that size, uh, uh, conundrum that have been a problem or been an issue in WWE for many, many years. Well, CM Punk finally gets his big break, uh, and, and he's going to debut on TV for ECW. I guess we should mention he did have a cameo at WrestleMania 22, uh, playing one of John Cena's gangsters. Uh, and that's, that's pretty common. You go back and, and see the undertaker's entrance a few years ago. And it was a lot of, uh, uh, quote unquote underneath talent and even triple H, you know, at WrestleMania in 2014, he had, uh, I think it was Alexa bliss and Sasha banks and Charlotte flair, uh, helping with his entrance. So that's sort of a, a rite of passage for a lot of developmental talents. But once he's on TV, he's on TV for ECW. So they're going to relaunch ECW and, and, and task Paul Heyman with trying to make that show successful. And of course, one of the talents he wants to feature is CM Punk. And while not a lot of great stuff comes from this relaunch of ECW, I don't know that he would have had the opportunity, uh, to, to shine on the big stage with, um, I don't know the right lens had Paul Heyman not been there to shepherd it. And ECW certainly provided that. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Heyman was good at putting shine on talents. Paul uh, had learned these skills early on. Uh, and uh, as I did from the standpoint of as a, a booker, not a, not a, not a writer, different role. Now we've talked about this here on the show, uh, a booker and a writer are different entities or just different. There's apples and oranges here. Uh, but Heyman was good at just looking, evaluating a talent and then booking them to play to their strengths and do, and put them in positions, uh, where they are good at executing a specific thing. If that makes any sense to you folks, it's just Heyman was just good at you limit You don't put a talent in a position there that they don't shine. And I, here's the best analogy. I, used to, I tell you in talents this all the time. You don't need to work on your punches in, in practice because that's, that's, that's an ancillary part of wrestling is throwing punches. It should still be illegal, in my opinion. If the heels have no rules to break, then they're screwed. And you can't get heat on a heel that doesn't, isn't good about breaking the rules and lying about it to some degree. So that's, that's how that worked. But Heyman was really good at hiding weaknesses and exploiting strengths. And he was able to do that with punk. And I think what it also did, his interactions with punk, uh, gave, uh, Heyman's interactions with punk gave punk confidence, uh, that he's on the right track. So I think there's a lot of wins with the Heyman punk relationship. And, uh, but you know, I, I, and Heyman again, did a great job of identifying a really rough, but top talent that we could utilize. We should mention that, uh, now not only is he given an opportunity to tell his straight edge story on camera, but he's also presented with a Muay Thai background and, uh, he does sort of the, uh, wrist roll, the old famous Vanderlei Silva. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell that he has a, a big MMA influence and a big fan of that. And, uh, Paul puts him in good spots against a lot of old ECW talent like CW Anderson and Stevie Richards and, just incredible, but he gets really his big break, probably teaming with D generation X and the Hardy boys in a survivor series match. And 
you know, knowing what we know now about, you know, the rumor and innuendo that maybe triple H wasn't the biggest CM Punk fan. That's an interesting pairing, you know, Punk with the Hardys. Maybe I could see it, but Punk with Shawn Michaels and triple H, a couple of guys who have a reputation for not always being, uh, the friendliest of guys with young talent. And I think at different times, they've both been rather vocal about their opinions backstage. Chat me up. Uh, what'd you think of this pairing? And, uh, did you have a specific conversation with either Shawn Michaels or triple H about CM Punk? I don't recall having a specific conversation. I think that quite honestly, uh, if I was guessing what, uh, uh, triple H's issues with punk would be, would be punk's physique and how he looked, uh, and that he, did he, cause he did not look like a guy that was a future WWE champion to any eyes, of a lot of people. Uh, but here's the thing, man, he, his skill sets for all of this stuff was great. Uh, and so I think their issues, quite frankly, is more like on how he looked in their view, uh, and not how he worked. So, uh, but here's the other thing about that. Once they saw how good he was, I think some of that scuttlebutt and the little, you know, little, uh, whispers about punk's physique or his arms aren't big enough or he didn't have a big enough shoulder. Some of that bullshit. Uh, that he, uh, you know, uh, after we saw, they saw what he was all about. Uh, I think that, that the the bitching subsided to some degree, but because his lifestyle, he believed in it, he preached it. He talked about it. Uh, I think that he, uh, uh, still has some bullshit to deal with, but it was less because it was obvious he was going to be a top star. And when you saw, if you see somebody that's a real good worker that does not have a, a reputation for hurting people, uh, then it encourages the more uh, established incumbents to want to work with him too. And I kind of think that's where that thing went, and uh, which is kind of we'll talk about it here in a second. But that's kind of like where the Undertaker came in. I think Taker wanted to work with Punk because he saw something special in this guy, and Taker's a team player. They get another another star over, just helps him draw more money. Of which they all share. So, uh, I think there was more of a physique thing than anything else on, on Hunter's part. Maybe, uh, Sean would have followed Hunter along more, uh, usually. So, but I think it's what it was, just <clears throat> a physique thing and kind of weak, kind of weak. It's kind of weak reason not to like somebody. If that is the case, the, uh, worst pay-per-view of all time, December to dismember, uh, features an elimination chamber match. And Bruce Pritchard has told us that. He remembers Paul Heyman campaigning really, really hard that the big show should be the first person eliminated and it should happen within seconds because CM Punk tapped him out. And of course, that's not what wound up happening. Uh, Paul Heyman, that would be the end of him sort of running ECW and he's going to be asked to go home. And instead of tapping out big show right away, he's actually the first person eliminated. And it happens at the hands of Mr. Rob Van Dam. Do you remember December to dismember and this debacle? Uh, I remember that it was a debacle. Too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, too many, uh, random agendas, you know, uh, the ECW phenomenon is a uh, pretty incredible. You know, I was, I was, was, and still am a fan of their product. Uh, I, I love listening to, uh, Bubba Dudley talk about EC, his ECW days fondly and glowingly on busted open radio, my, my favorite radio show. 
uh, with Dave LaGreca and the crew. Uh, I love those guys. But I, I think sometimes uh, uh, the love of ECW is sometimes misguided to the standpoint that um, it, it's hard for me to fathom that there would be an ECW that created by Paul Heyman if there had not been a Mid-South Wrestling that Paul Heyman watched as a tape trader and a, and a fan because the ECW physicality, the blood, the guts, and the beer, the fighting, the brawling was very prominent on, on Mid-South long before ECW was created. So I think that the Mid-South had something to do with the ECW uh, uh, stylings. Uh, big fan of it. So, uh, But I, the, the thing I'm going to try to say is that the ECW brand to those that were committed to it is still a very uh, special thing. And if you, like I said, if you listen to Bubba or some of these other guys or ECW guys had the jersey, the first jersey, the first helmet, they were in the game. Uh, you'll you'll hear that it was a special place. But we Paul tried so hard to resurrect it and make it a special place that uh, it sometimes alienated some folks. Uh, but Paul can be very persistent. And uh, I remember talking to Paul one time. He wanted to do he, – he, he was pitching creative some some program for uh, uh, little Guido, uh, one of his ECW boys. Uh, and uh, I can't James James Marito, I think is his last name. Great guy. But he's small. I said, Paul, you're dying on the wrong hill, man. Hey, you, you're, trying to, you're, bug, you're bugging the hell out of Vince. Because I've just said, if Heyman hits me one more time about doing this big angle with little Guido, I'm going to kill him type thing, you know, tongue in cheek. But, but Paul was that persistent. If he was that persistent on little Guido, you could only imagine how persistent he was on CM Punk. There are different talents in there now. And I, hey, little Guido's fundamentally sound, good guy. You want him on your team. You want him in the locker room. But you don't want him to main event in a card. And I'm not saying Paul wanted to be the, the, the main eventer, but he indicated that he had that potential to get over and be a star and, and nobody believed Paul on that one or, or will go along with it. So, uh, that's kind of that, uh, Conrad, the, the, uh, Heyman had a way of ruffling the feathers and he wanted to resurrect ECW so badly that he was willing to put himself on, on jeopardy and it, and it bit him in the ass because as you said, Vince had heard enough and, uh, and, Paul was no longer involved in the ECW production. It just was not going to be resurrected. It was a, it was a brand that had had its run. It was a great run. The WWE bought the library. We helped fund them for a while. All that was good stuff. No problem. We signed some really good talents from ECW, uh, much like, uh, Lauren Ines did in the mid two thousands with, uh, the, uh, uh, ring of honor guys that we're talking about. So, uh, I, I think punk was, uh, he was a he he he. But he came out of it okay, even though he lost his his guardian angel and his biggest supporter officially. I'm sure that Punk and Heyman continued to talk and strategize and and, and game plan uh, all all along. Once Punk uh, or or once Heyman leaves, uh, Punk is uh, put into a feud with Hardcore Holly, who's going to finally end Punk's unbeaten streak in singles competition, uh, which I guess was like six months or so. And, uh, then he finds himself qualifying for the money in the bank ladder match at WrestleMania. And that's a pretty big deal. Um, because he hasn't really been, uh, featured in these type situations before. 
Uh, he winds up joining the new breed Alliance. And, uh, so you've got sort of the new breed version of ECW with the ECW originals on the other side. And, uh, he's going to start using, uh, a, a go to sleep finisher, which I think a lot of, uh, wrestling fans remember was a move made famous over in Japan by, by Kenta who's recently returned and I believe is now a part of the bullet club. So I guess next we should mention that, um, you know, it's not all, it's not all, uh, roses for punk and ECW or WWE once Heyman is on the sidelines and specifically, uh, in the DVD that you guys released, or I guess WWE released several years ago, you said that punk made the potential cut list several times during this era, but somehow Paul Heyman, even though he was not booking ECW anymore, he still was participating in some of the calls. He would always campaign and fight for punk. How close to, uh, being cut was punk. I mean, it feels like for whatever reason, some of the, uh, some of the higher ups maybe just weren't sold on him yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, he was, uh, it wasn't a, I don't want to, it really in the, in the, in the practical application of this question and this matter, he really punk was never really treated overly fair as a, just as a, the personal interaction of a talent. He was not outgoing. He was certainly not an ass kisser. And if you're not a sycophant sometimes, uh, and that's the only thing that was making you stand out to ingratiate yourself to all the decision makers, uh, you find yourself being dealt a tough hand, but as he became more valuable as a commodity and the, and the, I can tell you this, uh, the fans did that. The, the wrestling fans themselves started buying into Punk's uh, persona. They started buying into his quote-unquote act, if you will, his presentation. And, and uh, they loved what he brought to the table because he was so different and so unique. And it was very, very obvious that CM Punk was not a creation of the office. And sometimes when you come into WWE already with your quote-unquote gimmick or your name or whatever, Sometimes it's a rough start. Sometimes you don't get that running start that you'd like to have because the WWE did not create you uh, in that respect. They're going to refine you and make you better. It comes down to communication and ego. And, and, and Punk uh, was a quiet, introverted guy uh, oftentimes in that environment. Uh, I didn't find it ever to be sullen or moody to me because I understood him. And also, I was not in a position at that time to really influence much of uh, his career other than calling a match here, there, and yon because Laurinaitis had, had uh, taken that role. And I don't know how Laurinaitis and, uh, and, uh, and Punk got along. I know that sometimes you get a talent that's, that you could say is a quote-unquote high maintenance. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin was high maintenance. He, had, uh, he, had, he didn't trust anybody. Uh, he had a very a great sense of of what he was doing and what he could do well, what he didn't do well. He also had a, a feeling about, you know, uh, his uh, uh, how he how he interacted. Austin was not the most social guy in the world. He became that more often because it, when you become more accepted, then it's easier to get more involved in this thing in the, from an emotional standpoint. But Punk never Punk was a lot like Austin in that regard. You had to get to know him, but you wanted to get to know him better once you saw that some of this was a real deal. And Punk was a real deal, much like Stone Cold. So 
There's nothing wrong with being quote unquote high maintenance. It's up to the administrator to figure out what it's going to take to communicate with the high maintenance talent. And, uh, as we did with Steve and as we, uh, as, as I don't think that they quite got to that level of punk. I just don't think that he got embraced because of who he was, how he looked, his lifestyle, all those things for some reason, just didn't appease or appeal to some of the higher ups there, as you mentioned. And, uh, and it's unfortunate because he really, he's never, he was never a bad guy. So the narrative about you that always floats around is that you're this grumpy, uh, unhappy person, especially in that time period. Was it unhappiness or was it that feeling of I'm fighting for my spot? Because I don't think a lot of wrestlers come with that mindset today, especially in WWE. I kind of compare it to NBA players versus Harlem Globetrotter players. One, they're fighting to be the best, and the other, they're on the team and they know they're part of the troop. And I feel like I never have conversations with WWE guys today where they're like, I was in Madison Square Garden and this was the gate, or the crowd was the, the crowd was down. And your generation, I think you were one of the last guys to be obsessive compulsive about that, was what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? What are the houses? Where were they last time? And that narrative about you is like, oh, he was so hard to work with. He was such a pain in the ass. He was a miserable SOB. But who says that? It's just Twitter. Some kids, uh, Twitter, on, the, some stories, kids, some kids on the internet that yeah, heard a so, hand, you know, like so, a story, like, you know, third hand. Like, so, right. so my question to you is when you're in that moment, and you're trying to better yourself, and you're trying to raise yourself to the highest level you can in WWE, how do you deal with those frustrations with all the archaic stuff that you just talked about, and how do you not let it get to you and prevent you from putting together the best performance that you can and putting on the best promo that you can and getting yourself into the position where they'll finally trust you, which took them some time? I don't think they ever trusted me. Um, uh, and I, I think the reason I loved wrestling so much is because when I was in the ring, bell to bell, I didn't have a boss. And I always said and did things in the context, especially of house shows, where I, I didn't have to run anything by anybody. I would literally just do stupid shit off the cuff. I remember when, um, so road, road to WrestleMania, I'm wrestling The Undertaker. And uh, the, the first week after I, I won the, maybe, maybe this is the genesis of the yeah. So like I, I I remember saying this is a really stupid way to to wrestle the Undertaker at WrestleMania. And I forget who I forget who was writing at the time, but he got fired like right after that. Like whoever the creative person that was behind that, he was let go by the company like right like the next. I day. just thought it was a really weird like oh we're having this fatal four way to see who wrestles the Undertaker at, 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 at I it just felt like a disconnect. I was like it's kind of weird, but whatever. I'm winning, okay. And like everybody in the match agreed, it was like Randy and Big Show was like, yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't know. But I and then I remember being in Indianapolis the next week, and I was wrestling Kane, and Michael Hayes comes up to me, he's like, all right, Kane, Spike, one, two, three, and I just went, huh? I was like, what? Okay, that's what we're doing. I'm wrestling the Undertaker in four weeks, and you just, what are you guys gonna beat me every week? Like, what? And he's like, talk to Vance. <laughs> all right so i go talk to vince and vince looks me in the eye and he goes i've been doing this a lot longer than you pal trust me you're going to be more over as a heel when you after you lose and i was just like okay how do you I mean, argue that, that at that point i was just like yeah all right not my it's not my fucking you know it's not my company but it's still me 
And like I said, I, it was an uphill battle to try to make this t- match with The Undertaker feel like it wasn't so lopsided. I wanted to give reasonable doubt that, oh, shit, this guy could beat the streak. Uh, luckily enough, um, I did that wacky shit where I dumped fucking cat litter all over myself that was supposed to be Paul Bearer's ashes, and I think that kind of ramped it up. Well, yes, it was cat litter. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't used. I think the one later. guy was disappointed it was yeah. not actually his ashes. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm disappointed it wasn't really his ashes too. Um, so you know, juggling things that way like always sucked because at the end of the day, I was like, well, you're the boss. It's not my company. But like, you know, not to get political, I wasn't like, well, how about if I I be I should beat Kane? Like, it wasn't that. It was just like, how about I don't lose clean while I'm trying to you know do this thing it was just a difference of philosophy i guess you know and he he was like oh you're going to be much more over as a heel and i just, i literally i just remember just being like okay all right was there ever a moment where you think vince got you no. like you not even after the pipe bomb and money in the bank with cena in chicago was there ever a moment where you where, where you felt like all right i got him on my side now no i don't think so um because it was always a fight. There was always a, a conversation. And I think that's kind of, that's the juice for Vince. You know what I mean? He wants to have those conversations and the personal relationship. And uh, I just, I don't think he ever understood me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, he never got me. Triple H never got me either. It was just, I'm just, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I, I did what I could. Let's, let's talk about the boys for a minute because I feel like sometimes, uh, the, the internet, you know, wrestling community has their favorites and when they become, uh, sort of mobilized, say, like, Hey, he's our guy. And we're, we're all cheering for this one guy and, and we want him to do well and we want him to succeed. And we think he's great. He gets sort of a, a tag for, um, indie darling. And mm-hmm. so, and so I, I feel like whenever a guy comes in from the independence with a lot of hype and a big reputation, some of the other guys who are already in the locker room probably roll their eyes at that. And John Cena on that same DVD we referenced earlier said when he finally saw CM Punk after all the hype and reputation, he thought that's it. Is that a fair assessment that maybe some of the folks who are on the main roster, who perhaps aren't given an opportunity on TV every single week to really show what they're capable of. When a guy comes in from the Indies with a lot of hype and a big reputation, they're sort of looked at maybe a little sideways, like what's the big fucking deal. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back to physique. Think about it. So as Cena said, and and I didn't see the DVD, but I, I, I know I remember, I remember it and I remember it selling pretty well. As a matter of fact, uh, but Cena's assessment was based on look. How can you, you can't make an assessment on somebody by saying, I finally saw this guy and I said, this is it. He didn't even know him. Hadn't met him. Didn't have a relationship with him. It's the eyeball test. And, you know, even though punk was great conditioned, uh, but he didn't have that bodybuilder's physique. Now I'll tell you, he started, he started getting, adding some bulk and, uh, uh, you know, his nutrition, I'm sure improved. And he started going to the gym more, uh, and, and working on his, uh, his body. But yeah, man, he's, uh, he, it was not fair in that regard. Uh, Hey, it's also the same thing. Go back and think about this. 
in uh, I think it was when was it? Two thousand and you got a here's the deal. A couple of things. Uh, he had a he got a five star match did Punk with with Samoa Joe by Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer newsletter. That would get around. Some of the guys looked at that as a great accomplishment, and some of the guys who weren't getting those five star ratings looked at it as bullshit. So a lot of little things like that made him that, as you mentioned, very uh, uh, accurately, the internet darling. But uh, to say, well, I saw him and this is it. He had not, he had not even seen John had not even seen punk work as far as I know. Right. So it's hard. How do you make an assessment on that? And as a responsible producer, why would you allow a talent to say something that's so uh, self-incriminating and, and it just didn't hold water. So I don't know how that worked either, but nonetheless, it goes back to the same thing, man. You talked earlier about triple H and Sean not being big fans of punk. Were they big, were they not big fans of punks because he didn't do drugs? No. Or drink? No. And by the way, triple H doesn't do drugs or drink either. So I didn't never understand that, but the deal was comes back. Does he have the look that, that we, as in WWE covet for a spot on our roster or especially on a main event level situation. And that was where that came about right there. Just simply, he didn't have a bodybuilder physique, but he had the body of an athlete and a, as a wrestler. And then again, as I said, Conrad, when some of these cats saw how well he could work and how he could adapt his style to incorporate with yours to make it a, a more seamless presentation, then everybody wanted to work with him because they saw this son of a gun is really, really good, and he can make me look good, and we can have some great matches. So let's talk about uh, WrestleMania 23. It's his first WrestleMania with the company, and uh, he's well, where he's actually in a match, and it's the uh, Money in the Bank ladder match. Big deal for him to qualify in that. Ultimately, his number's not called there. Mr. Kennedy comes up successful. But the big thing we would see happen uh, next or of note that we should bring up is the vengeance pay-per-view in June of that year. He was scheduled to face Chris Benoit for the ECW title. Uh, but we all know that the Benoit tragedy happened. And as a result, uh, that match does not take place. Johnny Nitro is in the match instead. And Nitro wins the match and becomes the ECW champion. And punk has said that he didn't feel like Nitro was ready. He felt like he was more ready at the time, but that's the decision that was made. And you guys do eventually flip flop the title on, uh, in September where punk would beat Morrison for the belt. Uh, and then in January of 2008, Chavo would beat punk with a little help from edge to win the ECW champion, but the championship, uh, finally being around his waist and it being his first uh, taste of gold in the WWE, even though it's not the original ECW, it is a reboot and it is at a time when Heyman is not there writing it. It had to be uh kind of a cool moment because the original ECW would have been a great fit for punk. Um, but I think it's pretty common knowledge that as far as the pecking order of championships, ECW world title was way down the ladder from the other two at this time. Fair to say. Oh yeah. Way down the ladder. Uh, and, you know, trying to reposition ECW as a viable brand was mainly the, the, uh, goal of a lot of ECW loyalists and underneath talents that were not 
firmly placed on the Raw or SmackDown roster, but had grown up watching ECW and were fans of the product, and they saw it as their opportunity to get in the game and get television time if the ECW television show found its way uh, on, uh, on, on TV. Uh, I, I, uh, I think that uh, the way I remember that, I didn't call a lot of ECW matches then, uh, but I remember that he stood out over almost anybody. So, he, he, he was red hot. So my point was the ECW title change and this, I think it was just basically a way to get him uh, disassoci- disassociated with ECW sooner than later so that he could go to Raw or SmackDown because finally the light was shining on Punk that this guy is good and we can make, we can get more mileage out of him on raw or SmackDown than we ever will on a trying to do a rebooted ECW. Here's my question. I guess, do you think that perhaps he was given this, this ECW belt almost as a way to sort of placate like, Hey, we don't think he's ready for prime time. We don't think he's ready to be one of the big boys, but since everybody loves him so much here, this will pacify everybody. Here's your, here's you a little title here. Maybe I mean, it could have been, uh, that's, that's kind of weak in my view, not what you said, but I can understand your question and it could have been, it could have been that to some degree. Uh, I guess my point is making someone ECW champion doesn't necessarily mean the office is behind you. I mean, it's not, it's not on no, that caliber. No. I think it only meant that they saw his talent. They started believing in, in him more, whether he's ever going to be on somebody's, uh, come to Christmas dinner at somebody's house. Or on the on the you know birthday card list or whatever, probably ain't going to happen with him because uh, he didn't try to make that happen. You know he didn't care about having personal relationships. It didn't seem to me like he was all about business. Nothing wrong with that. He, Punk was all about business, Conrad. All about the business and uh, not a social party. Again, I say uh, twinkling my eye and tongue in my cheek about the females that seemed to really like it. That was a great thing about it. If the if the, if the whole roster would have open their arms, so to speak, as the ladies did, uh, he'd been the most popular guy on the roster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, my hero. So, but, but he, that's just him, man. Again, my, we were talking about this earlier in charge of talent relations, man, you've got to, uh, make sure that you know how to communicate with the talent. I use the Austin example. You got to know how to communicate with the talent. That's your job. And I'm not so sure that anybody in power, including Laurinaitis, who would have been his, who been Punk's conduit to Vince, uh, did a great job in communicating with Punk. Maybe they did. I wasn't there day to day in that regard. I'd already been replaced, but that's how I would have worked with him. He, I'd spent a lot of time with the guy, so that he had one guy he could go, go to that he knew would be honest and fair with him. And I don't know that he's ever felt that way under the Laurinaitis uh, regime. And that just, that's my assessment. It sounds like sour grapes for me for Jr. He, he's not head of talent relations anymore, blah, blah, blah. But I kinda, that's kind of what it felt like to me. So you go to WWE, you go to developmental and OVW, and there's a story that gets passed around. I believe at this point you might have even been the ECW champion in that wonderful resurrection. Um, sorry. Not you, just their the, 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 perspective on it. But there's a, there's a story that floats around about a night with you and Tony Atlas backstage in OVW. I wondered if, uh, I don't think you've ever told it from your perspective. I'd like to give you that forum. 
It's a funny story. Um, at the time, it really wasn't. I was the ECW champion. Uh, I was set free from my OVW obligations, um, meaning they told me, you don't have to live in Louisville anymore. You can go wherever you want. And I was just like, cool. I mean, I might as well just stay here and hang out, you know. I would still go to the OVW shows every night just to watch. And that day, I believe Joey Mercury came up to me and he goes, hey, I'm going to sign a TNA contract. And I was like, really? I was like, oh, good for you. Um, so it turned into this is the last time we're ever going to get to wrestle each other. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right. So I went to Danny Davis and I said, hey, can I work a dark match? And Danny was like, you can do whatever you want, kid. And I was like, great, I'm going to work a dark match. And it spirals out of control into this four-on-four -four tag. I can't remember exactly everybody who was in it, but it was literally like, oh, Seth, you're my buddy. You're in the tag match. Oh, Spears, fuck yeah, let's do it. You know, like, so, just trying to have fun. Yes, just trying to have fun. Um, so, I'm, like I said, I'm the ECW champion, whatever the fuck that means. And I'm... <laughs> I'm alone in the locker room, and we talk. You know, we're all, we're all going over this match. Like, uh, Mike Cruel was in it. Oh, he was so good. I think Cody might have been in it. I, I can't remember. I can't, like I said, I can't remember. Look it up. And uh, so I pull out my bag, and I'm getting ready. And I tape up, and I'm Xing out my hands. And I'm like, oh, this is, gonna, this is just going to be fun. It's going to be friends, you know, goofing off, but having a, you know, having a good time. And uh, Tony Atlas walks in. He's like, hey. And I look up and I'm like, oh, hey, Mr. Atlas. Hi, I'm Phil. Nice to meet you. What are you, what are you doing there? And I'm like, I'm just putting my gear on. You know, I'm going to work a, work a dark match, you know. And he's like, looks like you've got two broken arms. And I just go, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I got no idea where he's going with this. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it's that awkward. And he just says it again. He's just like, I mean, all that tape, it looks like you got two broken arms. And I just go, well, it's just a thing I do. I tape up so I can draw the X's on my hands because I'm straight edge. And I can see, like, this is just. It's not registering. I'm not getting through to him. And, uh, and I, I, after I get done explaining it, he's just like. Well, you know what I think? I think if you don't listen to your coach, you're never going to get called up to the big show. And now I'm just like, like I look down in my bag at like the ECW titles there and I'm just like, I said, I, and I just went, okay, I'm all right, sir. Thank you. You know? All right. And he, he, he leaves, and I just go, man, that was fucking weird. But you always hear, you know, like, I, this is the guy I've seen on the MTV show hiding money from himself and having women step on his face with high heels on. So I'm just kind of like, I guess that's just how he operates. <laughs> so we have the match. It's a tremendous piece of business. It's great. It gets over current OVW uh, angles. You know, an old favorite Joey Mercury comes back. CM Punk's back. Everybody's, you know, like, we do, we do good business. Baby faces go up. Everybody leaves. Everybody's happy. Remember, I'm like Dante from Clerks. I'm not supposed to be here. 
we're having the post-show meeting that they always do late Wednesday nights, and I'm sitting up in the bleachers with all the other guys, and i got the Major Brothers next to me, and Joey Mercury next to me, and I'm honestly kind of half paying attention because they're talking about the television show and what they can do better and, like, how they think it went, and they're getting critiqued and blah, blah, blah. So I'm, like, kind of zoning out, and then all of a sudden Tony Atlas is like, well, I think most everybody here was nice. And I'm just kind of like sitting there just like, that's cool, you know. And he's like, but, you know, one person in particular was an asshole. And I'm just like sitting there going, fuck, man, that's brutal. Like, <laughs> he's just calling people out, you know. And I'm just sitting there and he's like, you know, some people listen to what the coaches have to say. And remember, you know, and he starts talking about how he could bench press more than Hulk Hogan and how... He beat Hulk Hogan for real one time, and I, you know, and I'm, and he's like, you know, and a lot of you are really good, you know, and he would like go off on these weird tangents. He'd be like, you boy, you remind me of Tito, but some of you are an asshole. <laughs> and then that's when, you know, like Joey Mer Mercury elbows me, and I'm like, hmm? <laughs> and then I look, and then I realize he's just staring right at me, and I'm just like, this is fucking weird. <laughs> You know, and he does it again. You know, oh, everybody was great to work with, you know, and I'm going to have a good report for everybody except for some asshole. <laughs> and then I just, I just start looking around, and I realize my phone's buzzing. I realize the Major Brothers are, like, texting on their phones. They're like, oh. And finally I just stand up and I go, are you talking to me? <laughs> and he, like, wigs out. He's like, yes, you're an asshole. And I was just like, well, fuck you. <laughs> And I may have said, I, I didn't say, do you know who I am? I said, you don't even know who the fuck I am. I said, you don't know his name. He called Spears Mr. Piers. Like he, you know, I was just like, listen, man, like you come down here and you were, I know why you were brought here. You were brought here to tell people not to fucking do drugs and to save your money because that's something you didn't do. I go, and you're going to criticize me. Listen, it's, it's in the past. I've buried the hatchet with Tony Atlas, all right? I don't want this to fucking be dug up or anything like that. This was literally like over 10 years ago. And we, we fucking talked and we hugged it out. But at the time, I was like, bro, like, I was like, I'm the guy who just made it out of here, surrounded by guys who are trying to make it out of here, and you're attacking me, and I don't know why. And he started talking. He was like, I told you to take the wrist tape off, and you didn't. And I was just like, dude. And he was just like, well, go to hell. You'll never make it to TV. And I was just like, I'm on TV. <laughs> I was like, I don't have to be here. I like, why am I being punished for coming back and trying to help? That was the last time I showed up at OVW. It turned into, it turned into a big thing. It turned into a big thing. Those, those who politically didn't like me loved it because they went straight to Vince and they're like, literally, we're going to get you fired. I was just going to say, what was the, the aspect of the story I've never heard is, what was the fallout from WWE management itself after all that? Well, to go back to a lot of archaic, dumb, toxic, bullshit pro wrestling things, that, that's what it was. Everyone was like, oh, man, you're going to get fucked. You, you better go talk to Taker. And I was just like, the fuck for? Like, what? Why? You know, like, th this guy fucking attacked me. Like, I'm not going to eat shit just because... He's 
fucking Tony Atlas, you know, and I, the next day, uh, somebody else who was very excited to tell the office was Nova. Oh, stooge. I like Mike. I, I... <laughs> fucking unbelievable. He's way too excited about it. They were like him and Al, they were like trying to get the major brothers fired because I guess there was some story that I didn't know about, about the major brothers had wrist tape on and... You know, Al didn't like him, so Al was like, oh, it looks like you're doing a taped fist match. Like, just real stupid shit to, to, just to get mad and yell at somebody for no reason instead of maybe trying to explain, you know. And that's the thing about wrestling is, like, those in management aren't really good at managing. Like, they should facilitate and they should help and they should be like, hey, you got any questions? What are you doing today? Uh, you know what? I see you got the wrist tape on and, you know, this kind of old school. Maybe it looks like you're doing a tape fist match, but nobody's ever done one of those around here and they haven't seen it in 30 years. Explain some shit to people instead of being like, he's got a tape fist. We're going we're gonna to get them fired. There's way too much of that shit. And so, like, me explaining it to Johnny the next day, you know, punk, what happened? I got Tony Atlas sitting on the tarmac. Tampa International says he's not getting off the plane until he gets paid. And I was like, what? What the fuck does that have to do with me? <laughs> well, he doesn't want to go to, to FCW and, and get yelled at by somebody. Apparently there was a problem. I'm like, yeah, there was a problem. And I told him what the problem was. And we ironed it all out. And, uh, you know, I remember walking into a locker room. Somebody, somebody ran and told, told The Undertaker because they were so excited because they thought The Undertaker would get mad about it and I would get fired. I'm not going to name who it was. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's in the past. Was, probably... was it Nova? No. Okay. No. Oh, I did name drop you, Nova. You, you already name yeah. dropped him, so. Uh, eh. <laughs> no, it was, somebody, it was somebody on the main roster who, who never liked me and had his, Tried to get me fired more than one occasion. Um, so I, I remember I go to I go to the Undertaker. I go, so did you hear any good stories lately? And he just laughed and he was like, yeah. And I was like, all right, great, we good? Yeah, all right. The uh, 2008 uh, Money in the Bank match at WrestleMania is a big moment for Punk. Uh, he's in here with Carlito, Chris Jericho, John Morrison, MVP, Mr. Kennedy, Shelton Benjamin, and Punk wins the thing. And, um, not too terribly long after that, he's drafted to raw and his first night on raw the following week, he cashes in his money in the bank after Batista was beat down or after Batista has beaten down the world champion edge rather, and he wins the title. And, uh, this is a big moment for punk. Obviously now this is not the ECW title. This is the world heavyweight championship on raw and to get a win over edge and then, um, defend his title against JBL the same night, uh, pretty cool moment for him. You know, no, I don't think, uh, a lot of people maybe saw this coming that, that he would right after the draft win the world title, but nice little piece of business. eh? Yeah, absolutely. And the lights, the, the bulb had gone off in the power broker's minds that the fans are telling us we're on to something. And oftentimes WWE has been blamed for not listening to the fans and reacting accordingly to what the fans are telling them. Because the folks that buy tickets and come to live events that make the, the effort to get to a live event, the parking, the, the admission, the, the hot dogs, the souvenirs, whatever it may be, it's not a cheap proposition. 
Uh, and uh, I just think that, you know, Punk was the kind of guy that the, the audience lifted on their shoulders. They embraced him and they carried Punk to the promised land. Did they meaning the, the fans themselves? And uh, I, that's to me, that was always the best judge for him is that you get that direct market research. Those guys that made the attempt to get from their house to the arena and sat there for a show. And then when he came out, it was amazing. Uh, and, and a lot of that had, some of that had to do with his music. You know, I remember Jan loved that when he Funk would come out because she loved the cult of personality. Well, that wasn't it yet. He wasn't using that one just yet here. Not until after the pipe bomb, but we're on our way there, but this is still a big moment. You know, the pipe bomb happened June 27th. He wins the world title on June 30th, a few years prior. So June, for whatever reason, late June was punk's time, man. And I've always wondered this though, you know, you, you sort of give credit to the WWE brass and say, Hey, they're finally listening to the audience. This win to me felt a little bit like, Hey, we're just doing this to, to have a swerve, to have a surprise to, uh, Hey, nobody's going to see it coming. And I say that because when he defends his title against JBL at night, he doesn't just beat JBL clean. He has some help from John Cena and crime time and Michael Hayes is even on that same DVD we've referenced saying that a lot of the guys, pe- people in the locker room and the office felt like punk tarnished the championship. And a lot of the maybe uh, elder statesmen in the locker room felt like they were giving him the title too soon or prematurely, or it was the wrong move. So this feels like maybe somebody on the booking or writing team felt like, Hey, they won't see this coming. This is a surprise, but they didn't really take him seriously. And and I can support that by saying he loses the belt by not even being in the match. He's supposed to be headlining unforgiven. It's a multi-man match and Randy Orton and his faction punt CM Punk before the show starts. And he drops the title without ever losing it and doesn't even appear in the pay-per-view where he was supposed to be defending his title in the main event. It feels like punk as a championship is sort of an afterthought. And I think somewhere in here, triple H was quoted as saying, sometimes the, uh, the guy makes the belt and sometimes the belt makes the guy. And in this case, it was maybe neither one. What, what do you think of, um, the way he was booked as champion once he is champion. Cause it doesn't feel like a vote of confidence, at least to me. Yeah. I never heard, uh, uh, uh senior members of the roster complaining about punk in that regard that, that Hayes described. I'm not calling Hayes a liar. Cause I wasn't there. He was, he was embedded in all that, uh, creative writing bullshit, uh, with, all, with those guys. Uh, bottom line is, is that objectivity sometimes is, uh, a, a lost uh, asset within pro wrestling objectivity. It becomes more personal. I just see saw that. I think some of those guys just looked at punk and said, well, he, he doesn't look like us. He's not our, he's not WWE main event material, but to, so your, your question is well put and probably has a great deal of validity to it. Uh, but I say, you know, uh, guys that I never had a talent come to me and say anything about this impassing conversation about punk in a negative way ever. Uh, only a few guys thought his body was not good. Uh, uh, I remember somebody saying, well, his, his ass is too big. His ass is too big and it's too soft. And you know, wh- wh- wait a minute, where are we here? What are, they, what are we doing? The crowd's telling you this guy's over. 
our job is to put an ass every 18 inches in the stands. Uh, listen, I can't, I can't not ask this. Who the fuck said his ass is too big? Hunter. Oh my God. Too big. He's got a, uh, this wasn't the, 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 it's all about the workout shit, man. And how he looked in a, in a, in an eight by 10 or whatever. He's not going to look the same because he's not the same. And if you, if all you're going to do is put out androids, all look alike, then what the hell you got? You got no uniqueness. You got no individuality. So that was the whole deal. They, I think that the consensus was this guy may not be in great shape because he looks soft. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that his softness, as far as his ass was concerned or, or the, his ass issue, which is a non-issue in my view, uh, was basically based on the fact that the perception was he had a, he had a oversized soft ass silly as it sounds. It's so absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And I swear to God, folks, I'm not making this up, but that's, that was the whole deal. And finally through hell and high water, he, 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 he plowed through this bullshit and became the star that he is. And really, a, a, a he had a hall of fame level career there. There's no doubt about that. Will he ever be in the hall of fame? Uh, I wouldn't want to bet on that one. And I'm not so sure he would even accept it if it was offered. It's, uh, so weird that we're even having conversations like that, but I mean, I guess that's wrestling. Um, it's it's show, it's show business, Conrad. It's goddamn show business. And it's unfair to anybody that's being persecuted in that regard. It's not fair. It's being like a bully because you can, you got the stroke. It's not good. And, uh, I just don't like that, uh, uh, the singling people out in that regard, especially somebody that can go and punk could go. So after he loses the world title, he, um, has to, uh, figure out what's next and what's next is he's going to team with his old pal, Kofi Kingston. They're going to beat Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase and become world tag team champions. Um, that doesn't last too terribly long, but. Eventually he gets a shot at the uh, intercontinental title. He's successful there. He becomes uh, a grand slam winner as a result. And, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, from a historical standpoint, that's kind of cool, but he really starts to make headway at the next WrestleMania when he wins the money in the bank ladder match. Again, he's the first person to win that match twice. And, uh, not too terribly long after this, he's going to cash in to defeat Jeff Hardy, to win the world championship right after Hardy had beaten edge in a ladder match. So that happens on June 7th. And now all of a sudden we're trying it again. When you feel, when you see that we're essentially doing a repeat of the old storyline, you know, edge is involved in a world title match. Punk has just won the money in the bank. I mean, and now punk's going to cash in and win the belt. It is an exact retread. Um, did you have higher hopes this time? Did you think maybe this one may go a little better than the first one? It is all going to depend about the politics of the whole scenario. And anytime we talk about CM Punk's career in WWE or wherever it may be, uh, you got to talk about politics because that's what he was the victim of. Uh, and I'm not going to say it was all, we put all of it on WWE because generally when you have that sort of conflict, interpersonal conflict, uh, it takes two to tango. To some degree, but I think all in all, Punk was an uh, overt victim of, uh, of unfortunate, ill-timed politics, 
in his run of WWE. And in spite of all that, in spite of all those pushbacks, look at the run he had. That shows you how really, how good he really was. And I think the, the original, they're doing that angle over. Somebody says, well, you know, that was going to work. Or people, people love the guy and he's got a good, he got a great pop. He gets a great reaction. He's selling lots of merchandise, blah, blah, blah. All the measurables are there and maybe smoother heads uh, prevailed. I think that even his, his, uh, his, the people that didn't like him, uh, probably started seeing the quality of his matches. And the other thing is, is that when undertaker was very happy to work with punk and, and and to have their program and they had some really significant matches that told me all I needed to know about Michael's comment, Hayes's comment about a lot of the older talents didn't like the way he treated the belt or whatever it may be. I don't know what the hell that means. You mean allowing the talents to walk out of the, with the belt around their shoulder around their neck? Oh, no, no. I don't, I don't think he means that. I think, I think the, the idea was that he wasn't, um, what they perceived a champion should be like it meant maybe based, based on what his look. It gotta be right. It's gotta, it's gotta, yeah. be, it's gotta be his look or his presentation or his yeah. demeanor, or I, I don't know. It's just weird that, that so many people are so sort of polarized by him, but he winds up flip flopping the world title a little bit here with Jeff Hardy. We just covered uh, what happened at the end of uh, SummerSlam 2009. Of course, Jeff Hardy's going to uh, leave for some greener pastures. Punk is going to win the belt back here only to be attacked by the undertaker. And, um, he's going to immediately do a loser leaves, uh, the company match with Jeff Hardy somewhere in here, by the way, they had, uh, a, a really cool little piece of business that I don't think a lot of people talk about very much, but we had CM Punk dress up like Jeff Hardy. So he's, he's coming out dressed like Jeff Hardy and dancing like Jeff Hardy and playing Jeff Hardy's music. And it looks and feels like Jeff Hardy, but it's actually CM Punk. And I think that that feud, while it may not have been, uh, one that people still talk about to this day, it's probably a little underrated. I, I really enjoyed Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy together, or Jeff and, and CM Punk here together. Yeah. Great chemistry. They got along. Well, they, they, they fit. There was a, it was a social fit. And they, as I say that, and not with tongue in cheek, but Jeff Hardy was also kind of an outcast. And a lot of that was because of, uh, the perception that Jeff had created for himself of not always making the greatest decisions, et cetera, et cetera. But the irony of that deal too, is that unlike punk, it was very difficult to ever not like Jeff. Jeff was very likable and he felt empathy for him for his, some of the struggles that he had had. But no one could ever discount his just ability in the ring. Uh, I love the Hardy Boy tag team, but in all due respect to Matt, who I have, who should be a great booker someday or a, or a, a administrator, uh, Jeff was easy to like. CM Punk, personality-wise, not so much. There was a difference there. But boy, when they got in the ring. Uh, they came together, those diverse personalities, and, 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 and made some great music. They were they, some of the more fun matches we had during that era were, was involving Hardy and, and Punk. I, um, I want to talk about the, the, the Undertaker feud because he's going to feud with The Undertaker next. He's going to have some pay-per-view matches with him. Uh, he's going to do everything he can to cheat, and uh, he, he picks up a win. Uh, and then they, they come back and, and set it up in a hell in a cell match, which I think, uh, has flown below the radar a little bit. 
and the undertaker is successful, tries a couple of different repeat opportunities, not successful. And then he decides to take a more sinister direction and he starts, um, I don't know. He becomes like a, a cult like leader with the straight edge society. He recruits Mm -hmm. Luke Gallows and, um, he's going to grow his hair out and he's going to grow his beard out and, uh, he's going to try to, um, have some planted members of the audience and he's going to convert them to a straight edge lifestyle. And they're going to take a pledge of allegiance to him by shaving their head as a sign of renewal and devotion. This is some good stuff. And, and it is, I don't think anything like this had been done in wrestling. So I, I don't know why this wasn't, um, a bigger part of the presentation, but I think this idea and concept is really, really good. Me too. And the reason I didn't get any more publicity and better positioning was because, uh, it surrounded punk. And again, punk was a, a polarizing figure, uh, in the front office has, has been well documented. Uh, I thought that, uh, you know, I remember there when, uh, they shaved the head of, uh, Serena, uh, deep. She's very, and by the way, she's really, really talented. I think she's worked with WWE. I think last I heard she was working with WWE as a coach, uh, really talented, uh, had a great, great life story. Now she's resurrected her personal life and, and her professional career as well. So they did good. And then and that was a big break for Gallows, uh, who's now, you know, he's involved with the, uh, uh, with, uh, with the, the, not bullet club, but the club and with AJ and, and Carl Anderson and so forth. Uh, but that gave Gallows a, a, a pulse and it gave Serena a pulse through, through the vehicle of CM Punk, but it was a very underrated faction. And I remember again, as I said, uh, Serena getting her head shaved on television and that took some, some, I started to say some balls. I guess it took some ovaries, but it was, it was, it was bold, but they all bought into the entire presentation and you can't not respect that. It's just too, they're committed. And I, that's what you'd always look for in that regard, commit commitment. And they had it. Yeah, they definitely had it. And this was uh, a, a fun angle, a fun storyline. And I guess we should mention there is a, a match in here where there's some real stakes where he's trying to recruit Ray Mysterio. Then it becomes a feud with Mysterio. And uh, ultimately, Punk has to have his head shaven, but he doesn't want to look like one of his followers. So he starts to wear a mask and uh, eventually he's unmasked. So some old school, fun, silly stuff here. Uh, but I guess we should just skip ahead because... The, the real rubber meets the road when punk's contract is about to come due. And, and while he may have been an intercontinental champion and an ECW champion and a tag champion and flip flop the world title a few times, he's just not happy and he feels burnt out and he knows he's not the guy. And on that DVD, we've referenced a few times already today. I mean, triple H basically said he was never positioned as the guy. And it was like, even when we gave you the belt, well, you're not really the guy. We're just going to give this for you a little while. And then we're going to take it back. And unbelievably the creative is, Hey, uh, you get to air your grievances with a live microphone. And that goes down on June 27th, 2011 in Las Vegas. And it's the famous pipe bomb promo. And, uh, it gets over so huge. It becomes the most viral thing in wrestling in years. Uh, I mean, years and years. And as a result, the match now at money in the bank has a whole new layer. And, 
they, they build to this for a few weeks and then the match happens in Chicago money in the bank, 2011. If you're going to watch one match this week to get ready for CM Punk returning to, uh, the wrestling space, you got to watch him in his hometown, defeat John Cena for the world title on his quote unquote last night in the company. Now behind the scenes, I guess at that very event, I believe CM Punk signed a new contract. Is that right? I think so. I think he did. Uh, here's a, the thing about that is that it, it, it speaks to a bigger picture. Why would, if you didn't have complete faith from your boss and your upper management and yourself, why would Lauren Nottis wait till the, till the sands of the hourglass are running thin to start negotiations and get this thing signed. It's always going to be about two issues, Conrad cash and creative. Uh, the guy was, was a road hard, put up wet. He hardly ever missed a shot. If he, if he did, I don't recall him, but, uh, th- this speaks to his, the lack of respect and confidence that the uh, upper management had in him still after all he had done after working with the undertaker, for example, who had, I don't remember Taker ever having one issue with working with punk, uh, Ray Mysterio had no issues working with punk. So in the video that Hayes is describing, a lot of the other guys, a lot of the older veterans didn't like, uh, this or that. I'm not saying again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not there to hear, Hey, all these, this dialogue with, with Michael, but I just, I never got that from anybody. I never got it from anybody that I, all I got from anybody negative about CM Punk was that he's a different breed of cat. He's a, he's a, he could be a strange guy. And that's because he was not overly extroverted. He, so in other words, he wasn't fake. He wasn't a sycophant. He was not an ass kisser. And because that was so contrary to the normal behavior of a top guy in any wrestling territory that I've ever been in any of them, that he was just a different breed of cat and folks did not know how to deal with him. And, uh, simple as that bad communication. And, uh, he didn't have the support in the front office that he should have had. And that's, that's really, really sad. It is sad. Um, but he, he, he makes the most of it here because he gets over like nobody's business and yep. he becomes as a result of this, uh, five-star match and this performance here at money in the bank, the hottest, I mean, seriously, the hottest name in wrestling and, uh, not too terribly long after. Winning the belt, he makes a surprise appearance at the San Diego Comic Con, and um, they've booked this and presented this like uh, he's no longer under contract, but he is the champion, and he's left with the belt, and he's name dropping. Hey, I might go to New Japan. Hey, I might go to Ring of Honor. This added a layer of realism and intrigue that hasn't existed in not just WWE but wrestling in years at this point. And again, a lot of that was his idea. A lot of that was his execution. All was all the execution was all him. And sometimes that will alienate one from the, the very, uh, sensitive writing team. Their idea got shit on or their idea got improved immensely by the letting the talent have input, which should be ongoing with every talent on the roster or anybody's company, AEW included, uh, you know, the talents have got to, like junkyard dog used to say, don't, don't come to don't come to the, the arena like a cabbage, all head and no rear end. You got to have ideas and you got to pitch the ideas and you can't be BS. I gave the comparison earlier of 
Punk and Austin. Still think folks go see that video. Find it. 2K, Austin, and, and Punk. You'll love it. And you'll wish you, you'll, you'll all, let's make it Jones for the match, quite frankly, but also show how good they were. But that Punk was a lot like Austin in that regard. You couldn't be BS'd. He knew what a good angle was. He knew what a good storyline was that fit him. And, uh, so I, I, that was, that was, a that was the same, same situation there with him. He, he just was a, a, a guy that knew what he needed to do to get over and guys like that. You let them write their own music, man. They're going to sing it. They're going to perform it. Let them have some hand in, the, in writing their music. And, uh, finally, I think, uh, WWE, maybe by accident, I'm not even sure. Or maybe they thought it wouldn't get over. Let's just let him bury himself. I don't have no idea, but it worked. He got over and he, and he was like, you said, Conrad at one time, CM Punk was without a doubt, the hottest talent in all of pro wrestling in any continent, anywhere, any promotion. He was the guy for a good period of time. And as an administrator, as a responsible administrator, how do you ignore that? How do you ignore that when they're having a problem as it is, as, as do most wrestling companies and getting talents over to that star level where they're, they are at the top of the card, you know, name before the title type guy. And he was that guy. And it just, it just was like an act of God to get him to get that recognized. Of course, in storyline, they're going to, um, decide that, Hey, punk's no longer with us. We're going to crown a new champion. And, and of, of course, uh, they decide to have an undisputed championship match when John Cena is going to defend his world title against CM Punk and his world title at SummerSlam. Punk wins the match, but then immediately loses it to Alberto Del Rio because Alberto is going to cash in. And uh, a returning Kevin Nash is here to attack CM Punk on behalf of Triple H. And uh, after SummerSlam, that becomes. You know, the new direction punk is accusing Nash of conspiring with triple H to keep punk away from the title. And during their verbal back and forths, and there were some memorable moments on TV, uh, we would hear Kevin Nash demean the, the look. And I think at one point Nash referred to, uh, said that CM punk looked like someone who worked the third shift at the waffle house. Um, <laughs> well, that's echoing, it's echoing the sentiments of of Nash's buddies, so, uh, HBK and triple H they're following the reality. They're, tr- they're trying to follow the storyline the, the, the reality of the situation is now being turned into a storyline. I applaud them for that, quite frankly. Uh, and, but I think I also acknowledge when Kevin did that, okay, we know this guy's a player. Now we didn't like him. We, we, we may never like him, but he got over and as a responsible entrepreneur, uh, independent contractor guy, I need to work with this cat cause it's going to increase my pay. We're going to draw more money. I'll make more money on the payoffs, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, to me, it was a, a sign of acceptance to a large degree when Nash got involved uh, as the, uh, the beard, so to speak of, of uh, triple H and Shawn Michaels to a lesser degree. So I mentioned the money in the bank match with Cena, which is probably going to end up being maybe your most celebrated match ever. He's started to move on from WWE. He's moving to the Hollywood platform as well. He's got a Nickelodeon movie coming out in November. Did he ask for time off? Or did... No, I think he just took it. I think he just exited stage left and said, you can't see me. Um, thought, thoughts on... I didn't mean that to be a knock on WWE, I promise. Um, thoughts on working with Cena. What was it like 
with him, he was the top guy there, um, the, the closest equivalent to a Hulk Hogan in the 80s for that company. What was it like working with him creatively? What was it like that night in Chicago? And thoughts on Cena moving on from WWE when he's been such a big part of their identity the last 15 years? And you're going to get another Michael Hayes impression. I hope you, I hope you all enjoy the Michael Hayes impression. <laughs> I wish John, I mean, literally, I wish John was here uh, just so he could answer that question. But I always liked working with John because, again, it was, it was easy. Uh, and I think John was in a position where he was almost kind of glad somebody else came in and forcibly, like, took the reins. I remember the first time I worked John in, like, 2009. Uh, and, you know, in wrestling, the, the bad guy normally calls the match. It's just kind of traditionally how it, how it went. And I remember locking up with John, and, like, he was doing an appearance, so, like, we couldn't talk about the match, and I, I hated talking about matches anyway. It's like, John Cena, you know what he does. He does the five things, and, like, that's it. <laughs> so if you can't figure that out, you know, you're in trouble. But, and I remember Mike Kyoto was the referee, and I remember locking up with John and, like, grabbing a headlock and taking him over, and, you know, I'm happy just to sit there a minute and, like, kind of get the lay of the land. And he started going... <laughs> Tackle drop down, hip toss. And he starts like calling all this shit, and I was just like, <laughs> and I remember just looking over at Kyoto, and I go, Mike, who the fuck's calling this match? <laughs> and he he did he, he's he's laughing so hard, he was like trying to hide his face, and John just went, oh, okay, and I think <laughs> I think John was stoked that he didn't have to be that guy directing traffic and I just he let me do whatever the fuck I wanted so I think he was relieved but I also think that's how we work together really well you know because I was I mean you talk about I, I never like to take credit for shit because um, at the end it doesn't you know it doesn't matter but I was the first guy to be like why does everybody always take their shoulder like you know what the fuck's gonna happen like why do you let him do this to you without fucking kicking him in the head? So, like, it was really, like, I, I broke down the John Cena comeback, like, in a logical way, and he was just kind of like, this, this is great. How come nobody's ever done this before, you know? <laughs> uh, and, you know, just working with him was, was always great. Like I said, because he wasn't worried about his spot, and I think everybody else um, up until that point was worried about their spot. Uh, I don't think when I wrestled JBL, I don't think he gave a shit about his spot. Um, so that, that, that made it a little bit better. Uh, but there was always, there's always guys who were worried about their spot. And then, you know, you know that they don't like you. And, you know, politically they're against you. So wrestling them was always pulling teeth. It wasn't like that with John at all. Would you say the Chicago match was your happiest moment in the company? Would you feel the most fulfilled that night? No, I mean, happiest moment in the company, that's like really, I mean, that's well, hard to run. say. I mean, I legitimately did not sign a contract until that day. Like, we didn't have it. Like, Vince was like, what's the finish? Because if you don't sign, the finish is obviously John up. If you sign, we have to figure out a finish. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I, and I got what I wanted, and I, I signed the deal in the Rosemont Horizon. And But I, I don't know if it was my happiest moment, you know what I mean? Um I was always stoked when I got to help somebody else have a happy moment. That was always, I think, happier for me. I think in that moment, I think for Chicago and wrestling fans in general, is a happy moment for them. It's a great moment for me, don't get me wrong. But I think I was always more stoked uh, when, you know, like when Ape and uh, Eve got to do a main event with me and uh, 
Daniel Bryan, right. like a, a Raw. Uh, I was always happy to, you know, do what I could. I feel like in my career parallels with my life that I'm always like if I find myself on higher ground, I'm always doing this try to reach up and like bring my friends with me because when I was a kid, I never had that. So I'm always empathetic to that. And I always want to bring everybody for the ride. I always want to bring everybody up and bring everybody along. I always try to get my friends jobs. I always try to, you know, work with my friends to bring them up. If, if, if I'm up, you know, a level, I'm always just like, come on, let's go here. We, you know, like I kick this door in, let's all go. You know, I, I, if, if you want to go, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Eventually, we know that Punk is going to be cemented as the tippy-top guy, and he's going to have an incredible run with the world title, 434 days. Along the way, he's going to brush up against uh, a lot of the top guys, whether it's Daniel Bryan or it's Kane or it's Chris Jericho or it's Triple H, uh, you know, whoever it may be. But um, something that we haven't really talked about on any of my podcasts is when um, he has a, a feud with Ryback. And Ryback is on quite the tear. And uh, a lot of people assume with his new streak that they're, they're priming him for something. And... Punk calls in uh, a trio of guys to help him retain the title and hand Ryback back the loss. And he's got a, he's got a crooked referee along the way, but he's also got some help from this new outfit called the Shield. And I think in Punk's history, maybe that's that piece is overlooked because obviously the Shield are held in such high regard now. But they were introduced as in, in an effort to help CM Punk, and allegedly. One of the original ideas for the shield, and I believe this is according to the legend, according to the rumor and innuendo, who, who punk wanted to be the shield were Seth Rollins, who was a former ring of honor standout as Tyler black, Dean Ambrose, who was a former CZW indie sensation, uh, John Moxley and his old pal who he toured all the indies with and had not just 60, but 90 minute broadways with. Chris hero WWE likes this idea, but deviates and decides not to go with Chris hero, who we know is Cassius. Oh no. And NXT and instead slots Roman reigns. What a, what a, what a tangled web we weave. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, poor Chris hero who's a hell of a worker, a hell of a talent really is. And a great guy. Uh, he got, he got, uh, he basically got fat shamed as well. He may, he may have been another one of those guys that had too big a soft ass. I'm not sure, but his work was uh, amazing. And I, one of my favorite guys to call matches for is Chris hero, solid citizen, but it, the body, the, 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 uh, DNA was not good. Much like in the eyes of some much like uh, punks. Uh, yeah, that that's a significant deal, man. Cause punk basically gave the endorsement. So all those fans that love or loving punk and loving his act and the music, the presentation, the whole nine yards. Now they get to, they can, he can give the rub, the rub, very important. CM Punk gave the rub to the shield and all those guys, you know, Moxley and AEW now huge get for uh, Tony Khan and, and company. Uh, golly, 
Roman Reigns, you know, he's they're they're doing all they can to get Roman Reigns at the top of the card and keep him there. And of course, now you get Seth Rollins, who's the champion and uh, universal champion, beats Brock Lesnar twice in the same year. And maybe his most significant accomplishment is that he just got engaged to Becky Lynch, which I found was interesting that they went so public with that on uh, almost like a wrestling angle. And sometimes you can't tell a fact from fiction in these scenarios anymore with the internet as it is, but congratulations to, uh, to Becky and, and Seth on their engagement. Uh, and, uh, but that's another story for another time, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it was the shields. See, I, for, uh, if you don't go back and research it, folks, you forget some of these little, uh, nuances and this is not little, it's a big nuance. So the shield got brought into the game by CM Punk and they have made the most of their opportunities without a doubt. So hope those guys don't forget where they came from in that regard, because punk was instrumental and in giving them credibility. We should mention that, uh, not just old anybody ends CM Punk's historic run. I think, uh, the 380 day John Cena run was the longest of that era, but we know punk's going to go 434. And when it finally ends, the person it ends to is the fucking rock. And if you're going to lose the belt to somebody, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, come on, losing it to the rock, not the, not the worst thing in the world. Uh, March of 2013 though, he sets his sights on something else. I think the, uh, rumor and innuendo is that he felt like he deserved the WrestleMania main event for a long time and may have taken it personally when the Miz got that shot. And then when the rock got that shot and it was announced a year out and it feels like he's sort of being boxed out, but in 2013, he gets a pretty cool consolation prize. I suppose he's going to be in there with the undertaker. And this is before the undertaker streak was no Moss. And it happened at a time when Paul bear had recently passed away and they did some interesting stuff here that, uh, still stands up today where punk is running around with the urn. And this time, instead of it just being the undertaker's mythical urn, it's got the ashes of Paul bear. And in, in sort of the go home episode of Monday night raw for WrestleMania punk dresses as one of the Druids attacks the undertaker and then dumps Paul bears ashes on the undertaker and then bathes in Paul bears ashes himself. Some really over the top stuff, but some good stuff. Indeed. A heel. He's, he was a villain. He was doing things to make us, uh, in a negative light, uncomfortable. And it all tied into the storyline. And uh, he was a he, punk had no issues, even though he was, I'm sure the guy liked the money he's making on his merchandise and, and his t-shirts are selling like crazy because he had that cult following. And, uh, but man, the, him being a heel with his Paul bear angle was spot on. He was committed to make for people to dislike him in a strong enough way where the great goal of any heel folks, any heel, if you really want to say you're a great villain, then you must fill, check some boxes. In other words, are you good enough that the fans will invest their money to load those snotty nosed kids up in a car and take them to the arena to watch you get your ass beat? Great heels have always had that one common denominator. They have the ability to, to sell tickets for people to come see them, get their ass whipped and humbled, embarrassed. And that was punk had no problem filling that role. And then he, he does all this dastardly shit to, to, to take her that leads into WrestleMania 29, which is the big, you know, the 
big event in, in, in New Jersey at MetLife Stadium. So uh, I remember that show because I was on the pregame panel with uh, Scott Stanford, Kofi Kingston, the American Dream, and myself. That was my assignment for that WrestleMania and that uh, doing the pregame and the, some postgame stuff, whatever it was. Uh, so I didn't get a great chance to see all the matches because of our vantage point. Uh, but it was, it was phenomenal. He was a great heel and Taker had no issues working with him. And obviously when we're talking again about these, these guys, uh, they're not liking the punks, this or that, and the other, I don't, I didn't hurt any issues about rock working with him. No. Rock wanted to work with him because hunt, uh, punk was red hot. And he, and if you're going to get a win, you want to beat somebody and for rock to beat a punk was showed that the great one was beating somebody. It was a perfect booking in that respect. And so I, that's why I questioned the validity of these, these blanket statements that, you know, the talents didn't like punk. They like working with him. They may not want to travel with him. They might not, they may have thought he was too straight edge. I don't know, but nobody in the right mind could ever say that, well, I don't want to work at punk. He's not that good a worker then you're full of shit. You got an ego that's bigger than you need to have. So why would you want to work with the hottest guy in the territory, maybe in the world would be beyond me. And that's, and Taker saw that he's smart. He's objective. It was, it was good for the title. It was good. For the guy had a good match. And, uh, it was just a, to me, that was, that was the validation of how great punk was, was to have uh, more than one match with the arguably the greatest star over time the WWE has ever had and maybe ever will have in the undertaker and, and Mark Calloway, the undertaker was very happy to step in there and do their thing with punk. They danced well together. Why were you a dick to him? I don't think I was a dick to him. Um, I, it's a fair backup. It's a fair follow-up question. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a fair follow-up question. When I was supposed to wrestle him, now, mind you, I, uh, I wrestle until my knee locks up. And now I need surgery. And I was wrestling, I think, Kane on a Monday Night Raw and my knee, that, like, that was it. So I literally get on the jet with Vince and Hunter. We fly to Pensacola. They drop me off. They get back on the jet and they fly to wherever uh, SmackDown was on Tuesday. The next morning, uh, I have surgery on my knee. And as I'm being wheeled out into a car to go back to my hotel, uh, Vince calls me. And I was I was dating Lita at the time. And I remember being like, you answer that. I'm not, you know, and she answers the phone and she talks to him and then she hands me the phone and he goes, Hey pal, her surgery went good. We just announced on the website in three weeks, you're wrestling Ryback in a TLC match. It's the first raw of the year. It's going to be huge. And I was just like, And I remember when I finally did come to the next day, I was on the phone with Vince, and I was like, Vince, like my knee. And he goes, oh, so-and-so came back from that surgery in two weeks. And I was just like, fucking great. But, you know, like, what if something goes wrong? What, you know, like, there's just too much. And to announce it on the website before you even talk to me, it's a little much, you know. And then, but again, like, choke it down, be a good soldier, that toxic shit. Oh, it's got to keep going, you know, um, is no just, time off. Just fucking wild, you know? Yeah, I should have been like, hey, can I have a vacation? Yeah. Mm. But no, so when I, when I wrestled Rock, I, I remember the, like, the first time, I, I don't know if I'd met him, so maybe 
he'd been around, but I, I went, and it was in Tampa, and the night before, uh, it was requested that I go to his hotel rooms. He's got the whole suite in this Tampa hotel. Uh, and I walk in there, and it's him. It's Brian Gewertz. Uh, it's his assistant. Um, there's, like, two other people in the room. So I'm immediately like, fuck, I'm outnumbered, you know? And I remember uh, somebody who I didn't know who was, you know, part of his team walking up to me and, and handing me my promo. And I was just like, uh -oh. whoo, buddy. I was like, all right. You know, and I and and then we start like talking, and I I feel like maybe it was like a very Hollywood kind of setting where like maybe they're doing a table read or something like that, and like like again, this is how this dude operates. You know what I mean? But I was just like, well, this is me, and this is how I operate. And he, they had like all this stuff, and it was just kind of a crash course of me and Rock getting in in front of each other for the first time, and it wasn't negative, so to speak, but it was very much like no, this isn't how I do things. And then him being like, oh, okay, cool. Well, this is how I do things. Okay, well, let's try to, let's, let's figure it out. You know what I mean? Because if you say this, this, and this about me, then I'm going to say this, this, and this about you. And then he was just kind of like, well, all right. And I was like, no offense. I don't know who these guys are. I don't know why they're writing material for me when I think this is the way we should go. And it, so, like, we kind of pushed all that aside, and, like, me and him had, you know, kind of a one-on-one -on -one conversation in a crowded room, which is fucking uncomfortable, but he's who he is, and I, you know, I, but again, I don't, I think he respected the fact that I wasn't backing down, I wasn't refusing to do anything, but I was just like, hey, can we maybe do this a, you know, like a different way, and he was, he was great, and he was fun to work with, and I like working with him, I just threw that out there, because I was like, oh, he's texting me, I was like, hey, if I, you know, if I rubbed you the wrong way, you know, I know we kind of, had that little thing that first night, and he was just like, no, fuck it, water under the bridge. That's all. That's all it was. All right. It's a lot, I know. I'm sorry. So he makes a lot of movies. Batista's making movies. Cena's making movies. You're starting to make movies. I feel like there should be like an Expendables type of film with all these wrestlers. You mean there should be a movie that I pitched to the WWE Almost 10 years ago, like the Are remake of Cannonball Run. Yes. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. They don't fucking listen to me. They never listen to me. They're going to do it now. They're going to do it eventually. They do a lot of things that I pitched to them that they said, no, they can't do that, that they do now. But I don't care. Apparently, they give people time off now. Did you know that? I've heard. It's fucking crazy. It's seriously crazy. It's seriously We should mention that... Uh... The, the only thing left for punk here to do now that the world title is no more. And he's finished with his undertaker business, uh, is to break up with, uh, Paul Heyman, his longtime confidant. And of course we know that Brock Lesnar is also a Paul Heyman guy. So, uh, that becomes the issue and Paul Heyman turns his back on CM Punk. CM Punk becomes the baby face and. He's going to target some of Heyman's other clients, including the intercontinental champion, Curtis Axel. That was like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Uh, they would ultimately get a hell in a cell match where, uh, Heyman has to, uh, suffer a few minutes of punishment at the hands of CM Punk. And he's going to start a feud with the Wyatt family and form an alliance with Daniel Bryan, which is kind of fun, but it's not too terribly long before it's Royal rumble time. And, uh, he's not feeling good. He's not in good physical condition. He's, uh, 
Beat um, down. He's beat down and wore out and burned out. And he finds out that WrestleMania in 2014, once again, he's not going to be in the main event. Instead, it's going to feature Batista. And that's enough for him. So on the January 27th episode of Raw, he uh, lets Vince McMahon and Triple H know that he's going home. Yeah. And uh, I think Vince McMahon in February would tell uh, listeners on the investors conference call that he was taking a sabbatical. Famously, he gets his release on uh, the same day he's getting married. And uh, around November, I guess Thanksgiving, sometime in there, he appears on Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast, and the internet melts down. He tells uh, the, the entire story of why he left, what led to him leaving. Uh, he's very critical of the WWE's medical staff. He takes a couple of shots at Ryback. Uh, he is just not happy and, and happy to have wrestling in the rearview mirror decides to try his hand at uh, MMA. And I think most people know he had a fight in the UFC with Mickey gall and he had a second match. He wasn't successful in either one of those, but a lot of kudos to a guy who really didn't have a, a mixed martial arts background and, and, and is coming from the world of sports entertainment and decides to forego millions of dollars and try his hand at something totally new yep. and, and put himself out there on the big stage. And I know a lot of, uh, punk haters have been critical and said, oh, he should have had to work his way up and he should have had to fight on the smaller shows. But because yeah. of his name, UFC saw money in this guy as well. They should have, because he brought a lot of interest to those shows and it's, uh, it's something he still has a passion for. Now he's doing commentary for he's good at it and he's good at it. He's you, a, he's a hell of a broadcaster and he's good at it because he has the ability to communicate and he has the one thing that all these color guys have got to have is a committed, uh, relationship with a genre where you you encourage yourself to have, to obtain all the, uh, product knowledge that you can possibly muster. The one thing I will say, I've got this a lot, but did, did CM Punk not deserve to be in a WrestleMania main event? Well, you know, I, I take exception to that because I think he was in WrestleMania main events. Anytime you wrestle the undertaker at WrestleMania, Conrad, with that streak on the line, that was a, that's a main event level match. Now, if your only criteria that there could only be one main event at WrestleMania, and that's, it's gotta be by, uh, just osmosis, the last match of the night, that's the only main event. And I don't, I don't agree with that, uh, philosophy. Uh, so to say that CM Punk never headlined a WrestleMania, I, I argue that point because I will tell you that I believe, and I was one of those fans that one of the main reasons I was excited about that WrestleMania, uh, with undertaker and punk was that match to me, it had more sizzle, more mystique. It was more compelling than anything else booked on the card. Now, if it, going on last is your only criteria, then, then so be it. That's your philosophy, not mine. I think he was in WrestleMania main events. And I think he was in a WrestleMania main event with the most respected guy on the roster and the undertaker. And I can promise you that if the undertaker had not wanted to work with punk, then he would not, he would not have been forced to do so. So I, I some of those things I were, I take a little exception to, but he's not working on WrestleMania main event, but you're right. If you're only, like I said, if your only criteria is going on last, then you, you make your point, but I don't agree with it. 
You're talking about the Undertaker match in New Jersey, right? Yeah. So there's an that was in New York, pal. Well, according to them, listen, I'm from New, New York. York. I assure you, it was not in New York. I know, I was there. It was in New Jersey. <laughs> the swamps of Sea Caucus, two feet away. Um, there's that urban legend, and you kind of talked about it in interviews, like, "Oh, what's next? What's next for me?" But there's this urban legend that was talked about when that match was announced that you were mad and upset that you were wrestling The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Is that true? And how does a guy who used to wrestle for Ian Rotten for little money and works his way all the way up to a top position in WWE get mad or upset that he's wrestling Undertaker at WrestleMania? I don't remember being mad that I was wrestling The Undertaker at WrestleMania because I think if you look at it, um, that the the whole streak thing was like a big thing. Yeah. I, I think I was probably mad about the way it was presented. I was just like, well, I just want everything in, I'm involved in to be the best it possibly can be. And if you're just another guy wrestling The Undertaker at WrestleMania, it feels like that's exactly what you are. You're like, oh, The Undertaker needs to beat somebody at WrestleMania. Here you are. So my, I, I, like, I had ideas to actually build it up and make it look like a threat. And I never felt I was. I was disappointed in that, but I was never mad. I was wrestling the Undertaker. You know, I, I, I thought that was, I thought it was, I thought it was a good match. I, I love that match. <laughs> I, you don't got to, you don't got to clap. Sorry. So okay, clap, clap, clap. Well, you can see that on UFC Fight Pass. I think he just did his uh, his first show last year, and I think he did one a, a few weeks ago. So he's pretty active there. You can also probably uh, catch him. At Chicago sports game, he's a Blackhawks fan, a Cubs fan, and uh, he's a big comic book dude, so you never know when you might see him around there. You can also see him on the big screen. I think he's got the girl on the third floor and Rabid, two movies coming out this year. So he stayed busy for a guy who's quote-unquote retired, huh? Absolutely. And the other thing, too, about post-wrestling relationships, sometimes they're a little tepid, sometimes they're fragile, and they can become hostile. Uh, and he has had a successful marriage, uh, to his lovely little wife. And, uh, I, I just think that's, a, that's, a, that's somewhat of an accomplishment because the spotlight ended for, you know, uh, she wrote a great book, uh, quite frankly. And, uh, I think the, I think they've done really well. He's, his acting has been good. He's, he's very, he's, a, he's almost like a Renaissance guy. And maybe that was one of his issues because so many guys in wrestling, they're one dimensional. They right. live for, uh, the, 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 you know, they, they, they live for the, the moment they live for, uh, the spotlight. And when the spotlight subsides, it can have an adverse effect on one's relationship and, and, and one's personality, especially if you you were the primary guy or girl and both uh, he and his wife are big time stars. So, uh, I, I, uh, I think he's had a, he's had a good life. Uh, I think the fans going to love uh, what he's going to do at Starcast Three. No doubt about that. Uh, just a, a a Renaissance guy, man. And and and, and look, as somebody says, well, is he going to get back in wrestling? I don't think the guy will ever wrestle again. Now, I, and I would like to, I'd love to be wrong, but if he did wrestle again, the best I could see it being would be a one-off. Now, I have, would have no issues him having a one-off in AEW. Obviously, tongue in cheek here, uh, be great. Is it going to happen? Don't look for it to happen, but I'd love for it to. And knowing him as as uh, 
how he works, how his mind works. It's hard to say that he would never do it, but I just don't think it's very likely. So seeing him in this forum at StarCast on Saturday could be one of the last opportunities that folks get a chance to see him in this arena, in this mindset. And if you're a fan of his work, if you're a fan of the wrestling business, you can't afford to not uh, check this thing out. And as Conrad said, if you can't be with us in Chicago, uh, then you can certainly be with us from the comfort of your own home on the Fight app. And uh, it, it's it, that that one show alone to me is worth the entire price tag because of where he's coming from and the fact that Conrad has convinced him to share with his fans one last time as it was, as it were. And I think it's uh, something we're all going to enjoy seeing. And I can't wait to watch the show myself. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm a big CM Punk Mark. I respect his work. I've always liked Phil, uh, you know, and, but I also, I don't know how, how it would have been if I had been in talent relations uh, instead of Laurenitis not knocking John in that regard, but we, we've managed differently. We communicated differently. Uh, and maybe things have been a little bit smoother for him there because it didn't seem like he had the backup that he needed, but this show at Starcast is going to be extraordinary and folks can't encourage you to watch it enough. And again, you say, well, I can't get to Chicago jail. Okay. Conrad's got the answer for you. The fight app. It's easy. You, you buy it and you get so much stuff with it. And, and it's like you're there. So take advantage of it, folks. I, uh, as a fan of Starcast. And being a small part of it as a talent. Now, another guy that's pretty old school is CM Punk. He decided he was done. You know, he 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 was, you know, burned out. I guess is the best way of putting it. I, that's what I believe. Yeah, I liked his work. I still like his work. I like him. Uh, I don't talk to him. I, you know, he's kind of off the radar. Uh, one of the, he's one of those kind of guys that probably would have been successful in the territory days and had great runs in various territories because he's smart. Uh, and he feels has great instincts. What was your take on just basically on what you read? Cause I'm assuming you haven't talked with him either. Uh, uh, but what was your take on him, uh, uh, leaving as abruptly from WWE as he did? Um, yeah, first of all, I saw the, the, the promo, the promo, whichever everybody called the, the pipe bomb. Right. And, uh, I thought it was brilliant. And, that's my problem with wrestling these days is not enough people believe it, uh, first of all. And you could believe that because so much of it, as Jerry Jarrett taught me years ago, 30 years ago, uh, telling the truth A, B, C, so when you work them D and E, they believe it because A, B, and C was the truth, so why wouldn't yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, the promo was brilliant. He's a great communicator. Yeah. He has a great personality, a great charisma. And the, then the following week or whenever it was, when he came out to Cult of Personality, Vince does not like to pay for music rights. We know this. Mm-hmm. So I, I almost creamed because he got everything he wanted, and I knew that in his contract, uh, when I heard that music, and it fits him. And, you know, at this point, I don't know what was going on. I'm not even as privy as you are, and you're not privy. Nope. Uh, was he promised something he didn't get? Did he feel like he had accomplished everything that there was to accomplish? Uh, nagging injuries physically, burnout mentally. All I, all I know is uh, the day that, and you were there, and you remember the day that I left 
WCW television at TBS at Center Stage in Atlanta and never came back. Um, on In the car on the way to, to Center Stage with Bobby Eaton and, and Stan Lane, I had, had gotten up late. We'd, we'd been on the road. We hadn't been home in a week. Uh, I, I was tired. I was listless. I, I hated the idea of going to do this television, and I loved the wrestling business, yep. and I loved being in it. I'd never felt like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we got there, it just got worse, and uh, the, the tale is recounted in my Midnight Express scrapbook, available at jimcornett.com. There you have it, folks. Uh, you can have it in your own home. Uh, but I, I understand. I just, uh, the first cross thing that Ole Anderson said to me, I said, you know what, I'm going home. No, actually, he said, well, if you don't like it, go home. And I said, you know what, Ole, that's the best idea anybody's ever yeah. had. Call me a cab. <laughs> and, uh, no, I, I actually went out <laughs> no, and asked saying... Dan Lane for the car keys to the rental car, and he said, uh, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. He said, I'm going with you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we made peace with Bobby, who had a family and needed the the income, and we went to Charlotte. I understand. You just don't want to do it anymore. This is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's your life. You're You're playing yourself, but it's still a part. Um, it, it's physically taxing, mentally demanding. There's pressure. I'm proud for CM Punk that he's saved his money. He lives leanly from what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, he's made a lot of money. I'm proud for him that he can just say, I'm going to go home because I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And I'm driving myself crazy. And and he did. And I, I love it. Well, I love I, it. I don't, you, I don't, I'm not going to preface my answer, my, my statement. Well, I'll ask you. Do you think he's wrestled his last match? I I can't say that because I, yeah. I haven't talked to him. I don't know where he's at. Uh, because, you know, at, at the time I left WCW, I didn't give a crap. Yeah. Uh, we're PG here, folks. Yes, we are. Um, whether <laughs> I ever went to a wrestling show again. And I did it for another 20 years. And then two years ago, I said, I don't give a crap if I ever go to another wrestling show yeah, again. Right. Um, I don't think he's wrestled his last match. I think now I'm not saying he's going to wrestle for WWE again. I don't know that. I'm not saying that. I just think the guy is such a he loves the business like you and I do. You know, I'm not going to go call any wrestling on a weekly TV show anymore. I know that, but I'm not telling you I'm not going to make a. I wouldn't do something special here, there, and yon, or I, I'm doing this podcast. I'm going to keep doing things that connect, keep me connected with the fans because that's what I am. But I think the guy is a. He's too good, and he loves it too much not to. You know, to. he might he might just go and and do it in Chicago at at an in, in, in independent show. Yeah. I'm trying to say, right? Uh, just to do it, who knows? And and you know, once again, that's great for him. And the, the guys that I'm most proud of, uh, we talked about earlier, uh, Landstorm and Chris Jericho, because they're both in the position now, and I'm glad I had some. Uh, part to play in their early development uh, where they can do whatever they want. Right. Lance wrestles a time or two a year uh, for promoters that he wants to work for or people he wants to work against. Got a great school. And Chris comes back uh, to, the, to you know, the, the company whenever he's basically free from Fozzie and the other things he does right. and the, the angle fits. And I'm, you know, I'm proud of both of those guys because that's the way in their stage of the game 
uh, at their age that uh, that's what wrestlers should aspire to. I think everybody, you know, I talk to these young guys. Chris Jericho and Lance Storm are both good role models uh, that young talents could look to and aspire to be. And that is before you get old and broke down and all your parts got to be replaced, you saved enough money that you can you can live and you can enjoy your life. And I, uh, I, I it breaks my heart to see guys, and there were a lot of them in New Orleans that really need a payday. And uh, to be honest, that's why I was a fan of yours when you were responsible for talent relations and not a fan of some of the other people, which will remain nameless, but uh, – you had regular meetings, and you instructed the guys at pay your taxes. Uh, you're an, in, an independent contractor. I can't say that word tonight. And uh, you're responsible for your taxes and, and, and keep your insurance and, and have a fallback plan, et cetera, et cetera. You, you encompassed uh, the experience that they would encounter when they got in the wrestling business. And uh, that's, you know, once again, in our day, and I aspired to booking and matchmaking and, and management and ownership because that's the way that you made uh, consistent big money for right. a, a decades period of time instead of, you know, having hot runs as a wrestler, as a performer. And that's what, you know, unfortunately that's not open to guys these days because of the corporate ownership and the, the fact that you – you know, you really can't just go in, become the top star, and take over the territory these days. Yeah. You got. Well, here's the deal. You got to have. You get in the wrestling business. Anybody listening to this podcast that aspires to be in the wrestling business in any level, you got to have a plan B. And I've had guys. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they're, they probably have regurgitated my speech about having plan B. The majority of people that get in the business today are not going to make it, and that's not being negative. It's not being bitter. It's being re- real. Well, how many uh, how many garage rock bands are there, and how many Rolling Stones are well, there? Well, there's a good. I, yeah. That's a dated reference, but well, it still applies. Damn right, it applies. But I, I see kind of a little bit of that. I guess a little bit Billy Robinson stuff kind of wore off on uh, on Harry too as time went on. Maybe a second generation or or a story or something. But he, there's a little bit of something there. I'm not sure exactly how to. Explain. Yeah, I know that Harry spent a lot of time with uh, Billy Robinson. Before he passed away, you know, trying to, um, you know, learn all he could about submissions and uh, takedowns. And you know, I think Harry's sometimes been a little whimsical or debates uh, going back, going to UFC and uh, trying trying his hand at martial arts, which is a pretty tough, uh, you know, crossover. But mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, even look at CM Punk, you know, there's a lot of guys that get that. You get the adrenaline rush from pro wrestling, and uh, you can, I think, get even more of a rush if you want to take that uh, path in uh, UFC. Yeah, you think, uh, uh, I know we're all on the road here, uh, talking about Harry, then the punk thing's an interesting question. I, people ask me how, you, how I think he's going to do it. You know, I, I don't know how his training's going. I, I know he's a smart guy. I know he's a big fan of it. He's a student of the game, in other words. Uh, he'll, he'll train hard. I don't know what his aptitude for it is because I've never seen him fight. Uh, but I, I think he might, depending on how he's booked and who he's first fights with, I think he might be a pleasant surprise, quite frankly. I have a, I have a feeling that from the little I know of uh, Punk, uh, he seems to be a guy that's pretty determined and uh, sets pretty high goals for himself. And I, I, I have the same as you. I have a feeling he's going to do a lot better than people think. And I think... Uh, 
I have no doubt in my mind that he'll be a serious contender in the UFC. Yeah, I think he'll do well. I think he's, I think he's going to be a bright surprise. And here's the deal. Uh, they, when Lesnar made the jump, from uh, and he left WWE then to go play football, but when he finally went to UFC, he still had that reputation of being a former WWE champion, uh, former WWE superstar, and all that good stuff. And they, the people booed they booed the hell out of him because the the, the MMA purists wanted the pro wrestler to lose. I don't know about Punk; he's got a great cult following, but I'm I'm thinking that there'll be some UFC fans that are going to probably pay money to see him get his ass whipped. Uh, and I think he's going to surprise us because I don't think he's going to lay down for anybody. But then if he wins or makes a good showing, I think he could, he could become a very, very popular, almost like a baby face in the USC if there are such things. Uh, it's just going to be an interesting journey. So no, no matter which, which direction you take, uh, I think Dana White and the USC guys have got a, some money on their hands, at least for one or two pay-per-views. At least that's my thinking on it. Oh, I think at least, no, like you said, it all depends on how well he does. And, you know, it's not an easy transformation going from one to the other. And I know it's not a path I would take, but, I mean, uh, I think um, Punk is, um, you know, I think he's pretty well-versed in a lot of submission training and stuff like that. And I think he's sort of been a, a UFC or mixed martial arts kind of enthusiast for a long time and maybe before he had all the success he had in wrestling I think he's kind of contemplated uh, uh, you know taking that different path and doing something in the UFC and I think it's something that he's had in his mind for quite a while and uh, I think it's just knowing him I think he's not the kind of guy to make um, a poor decision I think he's thought out what he wants to do and thought out how he wants to do it and I think he's going to I think he's going to surprise a lot of people in the in the UFC. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I like the fact that he's he prepared for it by. So it just tells me he's he's a strategist. He's 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 made himself ready for that. Uh, you mentioned John Cena being one of your a uh, top of your list of being a a dream opponent in the, in looking at this fantasy booking. Is it fashionable to boo John Cena, or do you think that people that boo him really don't like him? I think it's something they're kind of uh, cued to do. It's I don't know. I think it's more the older, like you, the male audience in their twenties, maybe the male that seem to want to sort of boo them. I don't quite get it. Um, you know, I do to a certain degree, and I think um, you know I went through that a little bit with the Bret Hart, the Hitman character back in 90, in the nineties, and I felt that uh, in those days that the fans were kind of starting to cheer the, the heels more than the baby faces and it became kind of a, a novelty to start uh, cheering for the baby or the heel when they're right in the middle of the match and I think ECW fans like to disrupt the whole show by cheering the, the heels and booing the baby faces and it made it really hard to sort of accomplish your task out there and try to win over the crowd and tell a story that you've sort of mapped out and I found that the best way to do that was to just about, you had to go kind of just about as heel as the uh, heel you're working with in order to have a decent match and you know, get the fans behind you. But not very many guys can do that. And I, I've watched poor John Cena. I've been in the ring with him myself when they start chanting, you can't wrestle. And, you know, my heart goes out to him because he is a hard-working wrestler. Oh, and, man, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, he usually handles that stuff with a lot of... Um, 
you know, there's a lot of class, really. You know, it can't be easy uh, having them turn on you like that. But I think it's become more of a like a pattern or a habit now, where it's like they do it almost uh, just to do it. I guess I don't know, but I think uh, John's obviously been around long enough to sort of deal with it. But uh, you know, it's not the easiest thing to to manage sometimes, right in the middle of the ring when they're there's chance stuff like you can't wrestle. Yeah, he handles it better than a lot of guys that you and I have known. He handles yeah. he, he handles it more class uh, and more uh, dignity than a lot of guys that uh, you and I both have uh, traveled with or known over our careers. Uh, I I just think that sometimes it's almost like a trendy, it's a trendy thing that people, and there's certain there's a certain age group of fans that you uh, alluded to that believe that. Uh, it's okay to try to hijack a show, but it's hard to say to somebody, no, you can't express yourself. You've got to express yourself the way that we want you to, or you can't be here, because that's not going to work. You're not going to do that. You're not going to – censoring is not going to be the answer. I think what your your theory, your answer, about healing the heels in a rough sense, because I would see if people do that to you, and you would just get more aggressive. Yeah, I, I, so that's the only way I could deal with it was just to go more aggressive and, and – uh... But you found yourself changing your style and you know having to you know become more uh, more work more like a heel to to keep the uh, storyline going. Right. Otherwise, uh, you know, just trying to play the good guy or the white hat sort of babyface, uh, you know, it just doesn't work at all. And they're booing the shit out of you. Yeah. All, you, all you, the way through it. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, are you still of the belief that there are still in the wrestling business that there is still uh, philosophically sound to have baby faces and heels. Yeah, I think so. To be honest, the more they um, try to move away from what what it always like, there's a basic formula in wrestling that that works. And uh, you know, looking at different guys they've had in the last couple of years that I thought really um, carried the the flag. Um, both Daniel Bryan and CM Punk delivered some. Unbelievable, you know, memorable performances of matches that, uh, you know, you can hold up to anybody's matches. And, uh, like Punk and Lesnar was a great match. And Daniel Bryant, uh, you know, last year WrestleMania was a, was a great match. And, you know, I just think that some guys, you know, that have the, the imagination and the creativity and the, the, the psychology to good can go out there and, and, and deliver, you know, unbelievable matches that, that, uh, Stand all on their own, and uh, you know. It's now you're looking at. This, I don't know who the next guy is that's going to carry the the ball for WWE and be the the workers' worker. Maybe it's Dean Ambrose. Maybe there's a couple of different guys that uh, can uh, you know become the focus of the actual working side of the business. I thought at WrestleMania this year you could see the different divisions separate almost permanently. I think you'll see. The heavyweight champion will always, for the next while, will be big guys like uh, Lesnar and Batista and muscle-built guys that are sort of stand on their own size-wise. Not necessarily about their work, but just their size and their character. And that guys like Daniel Bryan have been sort of, I wouldn't say demoted, but sort of delegated now to the uh, Intercontinental title. John Cena seems like he's been geared now to you know, wave the American flag and be the U.S. champion and sort of give that title credibility, and that'll become... And John Cena can do that. He can give a lot, that title a lot of credibility. 
it just seems to me that uh, I don't know that you'll see John Cena win the big title again for a while, maybe ever, and, uh, and maybe uh, guys like Daniel Bryan and some of the little bit smaller uh, um, mid-sized guys will will never see the world title matches that, uh, say, me and Sean did. You think uh, I, I I feel badly for uh, Daniel Bryan, knowing the fact that you know he he uh, paid his dues. He was always told he was, "Hey kid, you're never going to make it. You're not big enough. You're you're five nine or five whatever he is. I don't know, but he two hundred pounds maybe. You're never going to be a big star." And he proved everybody wrong uh, in that respect. But I, he's really been snake bit with these injuries, and and you know I, I hear the grapevine that's. Uh, it's more concussion oriented than not. I don't know that to be true. I, I, but man, those anymore. There's so many tests you take. I mean, I could only imagine how many concussions you had in your lifetime wrestling. It's, I bet it was d- double. Well, did, you, double. You know, funny Jim. The truth is, I, I had one concussion. Really? I had one concussion. The one time Goldberg kicked me. Those. The, That's amazing. So I've had a few. I may have got, you know, my head jarred a couple of times in different situations. But yeah. For the most part. You know, and I notice this about um, uh, old boxers and old wrestlers that come to the dressing room. Sometimes, you know, you meet the old wrestlers. They come in. They they got they got canes and they got bad hips. Yeah. Bad knees. But the most of them, and they got cauliflower ears, and they can remember everything. You know, when you meet these old boxers, they come in the dressing room and uh, they can't remember anything. They can barely remember their names, and it's like. There's a big difference. Wrestler, pro wrestlers don't generally take a lot of headshots, even though it might look like it. And it, it, it appears that we take a lot of blows to the head. But, uh, you know, until Goldberg kicked me in the head, I never had a head injury. I'll be damned. That's amazing. Because I just, you know, you, you, you wrestled for so long and started young. Uh, and, uh, and, and you always wrestled aggressively. And I know, I know you were taught by your dad. To work safe, but to work aggressively. Uh, Amateur-wise, you worked aggressively. I just—that's amazing that you didn't have any uh, head injuries other than that one, which is very serious, obviously. But I, I, I believe that that may be Daniel Bryan's uh, issue, and I, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that the rumor is wrong. But uh, it's just a damn shame that he's worked so long and so hard, and he finally got to a spot that was really special and now he's he's trying to he's got to work his way back into the lineup if if that's even going to so the tail end of that is everybody who's had some sort of issue publicly with them over the years whether it be bruno san martino or the ultimate warrior anybody at some point they all come back and the narrative and the speculation is someday he's going to come back when's the last time you had any conversation or contact with them and would you even be open to talking to them about coming back? And maybe not, I don't think you'll ever be a full-time wrestler again, but there's lots of things they could do with CM Punk and Persona. <laughs> I'd do it just to be like, I'm going to need some time off. <laughs> <laughs> Found your new T-shirt. <laughs> this is so fucking great. <laughs> like sign a full-time contract and come back, and on the first day be like, oh, I got this vacation planned, and I got to... <laughs> With all this stuff, you know, that'd be funny. If, if, if Paul Levesque or Vince McMahon called, would you take the call? Would you, would you be open to having a conversation? <laughs> Dramatic pause. 
I would not talk to them. Um, and that goes back to what we just talked about is, I, it, I mean, what, what other, on what planet and what other business does somebody suspend somebody else and then they like don't come get them after the suspension? That's like, true. why was it up to me? You know, it, 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 it's just, it's just a weird situation. But that being said, I'm over it. I've been over it for a very long time. You know, that, that it's in the past. Um, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I, I try to be as, as zen and as wise as I possibly can be. And my life has taught me a lot of the times that, uh, I would be confrontational when there's maybe no need to be confrontational. You know, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, like really, who gives a shit? You know, you're just going to, you're going to see them at the red light, you know, and people, <laughs> people who are racing to that red light, like I'm not racing to that red light anymore. Like, um, I'd be. And this is the dangerous thing, and this will be taken out of context, and this will be um, lesser websites clickbait for the next week. But I'll have a conversation with anybody, you know. Uh, but it's nothing I'm reaching. Like, I'm not calling them, you know. But if they're like, oh, hey, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you, you know, and see what you got to say. But it's, it better be good. <laughs> So the door is unlocked, but you're not going to be the person open, is what you're saying. I'm, I'm like, like I said, I'm. I, I think I had a, a. I think I had a pretty good career. I don't think there's anything left I need to accomplish. Um, and you know, there was there was stuff done under the guise of business that was absolutely personal that I've let go. And you know, it's just like I, I knew that I know I know who they are. And if they didn't talk to me then, why would they talk to me now? So, like, why is it? It's not an issue in my life. I'm just like, well, whatever. Of course, these days, CM Punk is all over the news. Uh, I don't know anything, so I'm not trying to hint anything in any direction. And I know you're not doing talent relations for AW, so you probably don't either. And even if you do, I'm not asking because if something happens, I'd like. Oh, to you're asking. All right, you son of a bitch. You you wanted you want the dirt, Connie? You're sitting in your big chair with your cheeks. Those are wonderful cheeks. I uh, think one of my favorite parts of wrestling is the surprise, you know, so yeah, I, I don't want to ruin the surprise if, if there is one coming, but right, me neither. what do you make after a nearly eight year layoff? You know, fans are still really excited at the possibility of CM Punk returning to wrestling, whether it's on the AEW side or the WWE side, but it is an eight year layoff as a guy who used to run talent relations for the WWE. What's your take on all that? I hope we sign him. I hope he's one of our guys. Uh, CM Punk is a treasure. Uh, and he can contribute a lot to a lot of guys. And he's willing to share his knowledge and his expertise to other talents. He plays it forward and has no problem doing so. Uh, that's my take on him. But uh, anybody that signs CM Punk for, a, for limited engagements or less of pull or you know, in our company, God almighty, we're only working one day a week. This is, this is becoming elementary. Why do people want to come to AEW? Because they can have a life. Right. And they can create to their own creative. They they can, they can create their own storylines. They can create their own promo material. It's a way to express yourself creatively yeah, that they didn't have here to forward in other companies by and large. So, uh, but if we can sign CM Punk to our, our team and our roster, it's a great get. It's a great get. 
So, and I hope that we do at some point in time sooner than later, but he's, uh, he, he's a, he's just a, a huge player in the big picture. And am I worried that his layoff is going to affect his work? Well, we know it's going to affect his work to some degree because he's eight years older. Uh, he's in his forties, but that doesn't seem to matter in today's wrestling business. No, especially when you have a schedule like ours. Right. So, uh, I'm not worried about if he does sign and I hope he does how effective he's going to be. There's no doubt in my mind, he's going to be effective as hell. And, uh, he can help us in so many other ways that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just amazing the, the things he can do to help us. A lot, and a lot of people are going to rely on him to ask questions and for advice and coach him up and things of that nature. If he does come and he's the kind of guy that's willing to take his time to help a younger talent, uh, improve their game. We got a lot of very young, impressionable talents in AEW that I think, uh, could they, 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 if they're willing to drop their egos and ask questions to Tully Blanchard or Arn Anderson or Jake Roberts and Dean Malenko and Jerry Lynn, I think that's a pretty good start for, uh, you know, uh, brain power and coaching and, and producing and so forth. So let's also just clarify a coach an agent or a producer are all the same job, right? They're given different names by different people for sometimes for ego and like WWE right now is their, their ego says our guys are, well, we do television, we do entertainment. So they're producers, mm. you know, they're fucking agents, they're coaches. That's all. And there's nothing wrong with that, quite frankly. Yeah. But if CM Punk signs with us. Uh, he'll be used and valued in multiple areas. And, and I don't think that anybody that's concerned about his in ring game have anything to worry about. Now uh, here's one from Chris Holman or Holloman. Sorry. He says if stone cold would have had only one more match, would Jr. would have rather seen him face Hulk Hogan or CM Punk at a WrestleMania. Part of me wants to say Hogan. But I just know the promos between him and punk would have been amazing. What say you, it is fun to look back at fantasy book. Of course, we know stone cold's never going to wrestle one more match. And even if he would, I don't know that Hulk Hogan would be up for it, but, uh, in another time, in another place, in an alternate universe years ago, would you have liked to have seen Hogan Austin at a WrestleMania? Or do you think punk and Austin would have been a better fit? Well, I wouldn't have disliked Hogan and Austin, you know, Steve was, uh, never thought he had the chemistry to work with Hogan, uh, to a level that would have appeased them both. But personally, uh, my choice would have been CM Punk because I do know the story verbally would have been told very well. And, uh, the match would have been fun as hell to call. And they both had, were attitudinal. Uh, they both believed in this sanctity of, 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 of pro wrestling and what it could mean and what it should mean. So without a doubt for me, I had no hesitation. Austin and punk would have been my match. I feel strongly that saving money is important. You know, if it's not something we worry about now, boy, we are really going to worry about it later. 
and I want to help you get out of debt faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. I'm talking to you if you're in a 30-year loan. Now is the time to take years off of your loan. We're routinely helping our listeners cut 5, 10, even 15 years off their loan, and you can do this without perfect credit, with no money out of pocket. You've just got to start at SaveWithConrad.com. Uh, and good to see you. Good to see back you. Back down in your, in your cave. All your, not all, but a good portion of your memorabilia. My eye always, always drawn to Wahoo's headdress. Yeah. Those little feathers that dangle, they're distracting. Are they not? Well, they're, they're, I think they're good. This shows you got a ceiling fan on or something. Oh yeah. You got to keep that air circulating in here. Yeah. 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 I don't be caught in a small room. You farting or something. That's you're very, very. Toxic. Well, the fart would, would be caught by the microphone. So we're both safe right now. And you're actually back at home in Jacksonville. You've been I am. yet setting again. AEW's back on the road. Of course, uh, I guess what now last week you guys were in Charlotte and a few weeks before that you had, uh, maybe a couple of visits in Texas, but Ooh, I bet no. you got to go home and check out Oklahoma for the first time in quite a while. I did. I, it was a fun deal. It's a nice trip for me. You know, uh, to be able to fly back to Oklahoma on Thursdays after dynamite and then, uh, uh, stay there Thursday through the next Tuesday when I leave again to go to the next city. So we had, uh, we had Austin, which is good, fun, packed house, great fans. And uh, you can tell man, the fans are so ready to, to participate. They're so ready to shoot their, uh, you know, to have, bring their signs and all this. It reminds me a little bit of when the attitude era was really hot, really flowing. All those signs that are coming out and we're seeing more and more every week. I think that's kind of fun. It's great market research. Quite frankly, you find out who they really like and, and, uh, who's turning their head, so to speak. So I got to spend, uh, that after Dallas, I went back to, uh, after after Austin, I went back to Oklahoma and then I flew down to Dallas. It was 30 minute flight. Then after Dallas, I flew back to, uh, Jacksonville. I've been here ever since, except for last week in Charlotte, Charlotte's always a good wrestling city. I, I've always said that these cities that were kind of hubs in the territory days, like Charlotte was, uh, there's a, there's a fan base there. That's just, it's just, uh, it's just a, it's part of their culture. And, you know, uh, we saw that we had a great crowd in Charlotte. Uh, and, you know, we just uh, finished, we came back to Jacksonville, uh, this week, which is uh, kind of a, I don't think we've got too many more in Jacksonville, maybe first of the year or something. We're not going to forsake Jacksonville, but we, we're going to be on the road and our advances and Arthur Ashe and all that whole Northeastern run is going to be uh, really good. And hopefully, uh, the COVID issues won't affect us too badly. And, and, uh, if there's an outbreak, you know, we know we got to, we'll have issues to deal with. So will everybody else, uh, hopefully we'll not have that issue. So but it's an exciting time to be a wrestling fan. I can promise you. Oh yeah, for sure. This clip is brought to you by SaveWithConrad.com. No, I mean, I was going to bring up the exact same thing. That was the big breaking news as you and I are recording this the Saturday before this podcast releases. We just watched Rampage, and I wanted to kind of get your opinion. You're doing a little recap on Raw here. 
of of the big news. CM Punk has to have surgery, and that's so unfortunate. It is very unfortunate, and I don't know to the extreme of the how the, how the surgery is going to go. But man, oh man, it's, that's just bad timing. And but if anybody can work their way through it, it'll be uh, Phil Brooks, aka CM Punk, no doubt. So I don't have any I don't have any qualms or any hesitation regarding uh, you know how CM Punk's going to return. He'll return healthy and fired up and motivated. And I like all those things. I, I tell you what, there's a big reason to watch next week's Dynamite, the Dynamite. Uh, and that'll come out. That'll be the Wednesday before your show drops on the main feed. But all of a sudden, next week's Dynamite just became big time. Hey, hey it's Conrad Thompson. Thanks for checking out the podcast here on YouTube. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and the notifications bell so you get a notice anytime we upload some new content. And go save yourself some money right now. If you're in a 30-year loan or you have credit card debt, it's not a matter of if I can save you money. It's a matter of how much. Find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Hello and welcome to Grilling JR. This is Paul Bromwell and I'm joined by the majestic voice of wrestling, <laughs> Mr. Jim Ross. JR, majestic. how are you? I'm good. I'm wound up, man. I'm glad Thank to see you, buddy. You're drinking Diet Mountain Dew or what? No, actually a little Diet Iced Tea uh, this week. So there you go. All right. Oh, good. Good. I, I missed you, my friend. Everything's, yeah, it's uh, been hectic with the all the stuff going on and the Nashville scene and all that good stuff. Uh, been a busy time for Conrad's crew and all you guys. And, and you, you had your appearance in New Jersey. How was that weekend? It was good. It was good. I, I, uh, we had, we had a battle of rain, uh, and then we did it outside. It was hot. But other than that, you know, it was just fine. Yeah. Had a good crowd. Good folks, uh, came to see us and, uh, it was treated well, good promotions, good there. Good. So it was all good. You know, I just, uh, made it a long, long weekend, but I was home for one day. Then I left again. That's, but that's kind of what happens. I, that's why I don't take too many appearances. You know, it's just, it's just hard to package everything in and stay on schedule and all these things. So. In any event, so life has been good. You know, AEW, we've been uh, number one on cable for, I don't know. It's, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's, it's pretty damn good. You know, uh, uh, number one show on cable. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're doing all right. You know, we're, I'm, I'm, we got a lot of big things coming up, as you well know. So everything's all, all eyes are pointed on, uh, on Chicago. And, uh, that's going to be something special for all of us. Man, uh, you're not kidding. CM Punk uh, running in uh, last week now. It's been over a week coming yep. out, running down the aisle, and the place exploded. You guys got to be pumped for what that means. Yeah, it was great. You know, uh, I knew he was in the building. I saw him briefly earlier in the day, but, you know, in, in the trainer's room, getting some uh, attention for him. And uh, and so, you know, he's uh, he sure has been missed. There's no doubt about it. I think the crowd's reaction would indicate the same. Uh, they were they're ready to see him. I don't, you know, I don't, I still don't know how healthy the guy, the guy is. Uh, you know, I, I asked uh, on air, even is he being cleared to wrestle and nobody knew. So I don't know. Uh, when I, I know he'll, he will be cleared. And I know that he's under good doctor's care. Uh, this, this process has been ongoing. So, uh, he, he's, uh, he's still in the process of healing as far as I'm concerned until I get word that, He's a hundred percent. 
uh, I'm going to play it by ear. What else you do? Yeah. You know, uh, but if, if, if he's, he's a tough guy, Puck's a tough guy. Everybody wants to see him and Moxie beat the shit out of each other. And you right. can count on their, count your bottom daughter. That's what they're going to do. Uh, they both have that pride and, and all that. It's going to be arguably the biggest main event we've ever had. And, and, uh, considering all the, the ramifications going in and injuries and all these things. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about the calling that match. I think it's going to be fun as hell. And, you know, it's, it's being in Chicago three or four days, you know, I get my Gibson meal and Gibson steak. Uh, I'll probably be hitting the, the Gibsons at, in, uh, Rosemont. Okay. Cause we're not staying downtown where the other Gibsons I go to is. And then I'm going to coming up soon after, uh, Trying to think, Raphael Morphy and I are going to go to uh, after the TVs this week. We're going to spend a day in Cooperstown. So uh, that's going to, I have never been to Cooperstown. Uh, Raphael's been there a few times. He's a big baseball guy, and uh, his little boy's a prodigy. There's no doubt about that. He's eight. He's he's a phenomenal. He really is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, we'll do that and and. Uh, I like the, if you're going to be bivouac for three or four days in the city, Chicago is not a bad one to, to select. And Paul, it's uh, also is uh, a good time of the year to be in Chicago. Yeah. You know, it's not, you don't expect freezing rain or sleet, snow and things like that. So, but things are good. The rest of business is good. It's, the rest of it is very, very interesting right now. There's a lot of things going on. And, uh, so it's all in my world. It's, 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 we're having, still having a lot of fun. So, and, and I'm trying, I'm trying to get healed here. You know, I've got, I tried new medicines. My doctor's really uh, working hard to get me back on my feet, so to speak. No pun intended. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, you know, just takes time and, and patience. I don't have a lot of, I think I have time. <laughs> I hope I have time. But I don't have a lot of patience. A lot of patience. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how it works out. But uh, I'm I'm excited about it, and this should be a fun show. I I remember a lot about this show, and it was a good it was a good success for Smoky Mountain. It was a, a successful weekend for them, and uh, and a and a big show scenario that Cornette has put together, and uh, just you know hell, he just he he worked on that card all summer, so. uh and it was a good show, as we will see and, and talk about. It's a good, a real good show. So uh, I'm, I'm anxious to get started with it and uh, go back. I haven't seen any clip uh, or any frame of video since I did the show. Okay. So, so it's all news new to me again. So it's gonna be kind of cool. That's exactly how we like it, Jr. And listen, uh, first of all, so good to hear that they're continuing to try to work with you, find the right medicine, find the right remedy. Yeah, uh, for your leg, man. So just continued uh, encouragement from us, from all your fans and listeners. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. been great, Paul. Good, really. Everybody's been great. They've helped me, you know, spirit, in spirit. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm better, I'm better at healing than I am working this light thing. Because you can see, I'm, I look like I'm sitting in the shade. <laughs> I don't know, I, and I don't know how to fix it. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together. 
It's those weekend golf guides. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guides, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.